You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 493. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Lake Burton, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 14th of October, 2021. In today's episode, a Ukrainian freighter goes down short of the runway after running out of fuel. A scrap 747 gets stuck under an overpass while being driven down a highway. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the Mike Wildman story, part two. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 493 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot and a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from her lakeside studio in South a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, multi, multi-marathon runner, a strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. So great to see you guys. Um, looking really, really looking forward to this evening's show. Lots of good stuff to talk about, I think. Yeah, mostly your stuff, well, but that's you know. always the most interesting, isn't it? <laughs> no, definitely not. Also joining us from Across the Pond... A professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Hi, hi there, Jeff. I I would like to formally give my time to the lady in the top right corner, because she's going to need it tonight. I just noticed how excited he was to start talking over the pause in the... I was hoping. So I, w- I usually leave a pause between when I say his name and for that part yeah. of his little thing. And I'm thinking, maybe I can just say his name and then right after. But no, he blew it. He ruined it. Of course, he did that That's, on purpose. He did I purpose. blew it. I did it perfectly. I know. Well, in your in your mind. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all right. We have, we, we have other opportunities in the future. And no. No. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about some aviation news. What do you think? Uh, do we have to? Yes. Stand by for news. All right. A Russian plane carrying parachutists crashes. 16 killed. And this is from Reuters. Uh, Moscow. A plane carrying a group of parachute jumpers crashed after takeoff in the Russian region of Tatarstan early on Sunday, killing 16 people, injuring six, the emergencies ministry said. At a height of 70 meters... 
The pilots reported that their left engine had failed and attempted an emergency landing near the city of Menzelinsk, trying to turn the plane leftward to avoid an, an inhabited area, the regional governor said. But the aircraft's wing hit a gazelle vehicle as the plane landed and it overturned. Uh, Tatarstan's governor, Rustam Menakhanov, said the aircraft had been carrying 20 parachutists and two crew members. I thought it said 16. Oh, but 16 were uh, 16 died. Six injured. Yeah. Okay. Um, six people were in serious condition. The LET L410 turbojet twin engine short range transport aircraft was owned by an aero club in the city of Menzelinsk. The Aero Club declined to comment, citing a law enforcement investigation into the incident. And if you're watching the video, uh, you'll see a couple of the photos of the crash scene and the wreckage. Cosmonauts use that area for training, and the Aero Club has hosted local European championships and one world championship. The club's director, um, hmm, I'm not going to say his name, according to TASS. The investigative committee, which probes serious crimes, said it had opened a criminal investigation into a suspected violation of safety regulations. Hmm. The state-run Cosmonaut, Cosmonaut Training Center has suspended its ties with the Aero Club pending an investigation. Photographs of some of the parachutes, parachutists on board posing in kit or with a plane were circu- circulated on the REN TV channel and on social media. Russian aviation safety standards have been tightened in recent years, but accidents continue to happen, particularly in remote regions, according mm. to what Yeah, they just had the um, um, Skydiving World Championship somewhere in Russia, in like Siberia. I'm not sure if it was the same location or, or not. Interesting what they said about the safety regulations perhaps being violated. I wonder, I'm, I hopefully we'll hear more. Yeah, uh, understand I, what's going sure. on. I'm hoping that's just a formality that yeah, because they're they going to do a uh, possible criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, I hope and pray that they weren't doing something dodgy because, yeah. uh, you know. I mean, it doesn't sound good. like it just from the limited information we have. They had a, a mechanical issue and they were trying to get back somewhere and put it down safely and trying to stay away from inhabited areas, at least. Yeah. And this yeah. Uh, continues to beg the question for me, at least. If you have an airplane, I don't, I know airliners, uh, part 121 scheduled air carriers are certified so that they can fly even with only one engine or one engine out. In this case, only one engine left. Um, And even with a, you know, full load, um, I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. do they have the same standards for this kind of uh, category or class of aircraft or not? I mean... Why would they not be able to continue to fly? That's it should. Maybe that um, I don't was a know, safety I don't know violation. the nature of. I don't know the nature of the the emergency <laughs> or what they were. It sounds like they were they were just trying to perform a landing. I don't know where they were trying to land. Um, I think that uh, like an off landing somewhere in a. Oh, okay. Well, I think road. that no, I, I have no idea. They were just taking off. It says. Well, they were seventy meters above the ground. And yeah. They, uh, That's yeah. when they reported their left engine had failed, but it said crashed after takeoff on. But it hit a vehicle, so they weren't particularly high off the ground. Well, I guess shortly after they took off, they lost the engine, and then they yeah. came down. They didn't have enough altitude to return to the airport. I, I don't know. That's, that's why, I, I, again, not. that's the part where I'm unsure the exactly what happened. I'm scra- again scratching my head, thinking that uh, that's you know what we practice, uh, right, Nick? In uh, in the simulator, oh, absolutely. We lose yes, an engine, so. and we are successful. 
That's there, there's no good reason why you shouldn't. With I mean, they haven't got a, exactly a big um, uh, you know weight of passengers. There could be no cargo. There's there's mm. a bunch of parachutists with their hand luggage, um, their parachutes. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean, they should have been able to successfully backpacks. climb away, sort themselves out, and then bring the aircraft back for a single engine landing. Uh, unless there's some other problem. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you, Jeff. No, I, uh, I agree with Nick. This should have been something where they should have continued to, as long as it was just the one engine failure and everything else was working fine. Yeah. Or perhaps I, they were overloaded and that might be the safety issue that uh, the articles are. It's a reasonable sized aircraft. Yeah, the L410 Turbolet. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they well, use those for jump operations. Um, this is not a light twin, though. So David Ogden says, in light twins, the second engine takes you to the crash site. A light twin mm-hmm. is like personal use, small, multi-engine aircraft. This is yeah. So there are twenty-two is, people on board, yeah, including their parachutes. Twin. I don't know. Uh, is that is that? Um, I don't know. The, reasonable uh, for this type of airplane? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Not very familiar. Yeah, it sounds. Airplane. If it's anything like a, if it's similar size to a twin otter, then sure. Yeah. And with a Twin Otter, if you had that kind of a load and you lost an engine, you'd still be able to fly the thing, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully we'll hear more and uh, all those questions that we have will be answered. In the meantime, another sad incident, accident in the San Diego area. At least two die in a California plane crash near Santee, which is again uh, on the outskirts of San Diego. And... Um, I'll just give you a, a brief um, setup here before we play the uh, audio from liveatc.net. Um, a doctor, Dr. Sagata Das, died when he was piloting a Cessna 340, attempting a landing of an instrument approach to a circling approach in San Diego because of the weather. Um, and he was commuting, I guess he lived in the San Diego area and he commuted to Yuma, Arizona, the Yuma regional medical center. And I guess he was returning home. And I guess he did this quite often. Um, and this is what happened. So let's uh, go ahead and play this audio for you. Uh, there we go. There's two, two golf turn right heading two five zero joint final. Two five zero joint final for two golf. And uh, two golf, do you say uh, clear for the islands to it right? Greater four seven turn left heading one eight zero joint final. Let's say one eight zero joint final, right to four seven. There's two, two golf, you're four miles from any. The center maintains two thousand eight hundred until established on the localizer. Clear to ILS runway two eight right. Surf of the land runway two three. Uh, clear for the islands to it, right? Uh, uh, for, uh, wait, two, three, two, three, two, yes, sir. The Senate maintained 2,800 and established on the localizer. 2,800 until yeah. uh, established on the localizer. Kind of talked over the controller there. The Senate maintained 4,000. Senate maintained 4,000, ready to 4,000. Two, two, golf traffic, 2 o'clock, 3 miles southbound, 5,000 descending, 4,000 to C-130. They are restricted above you. Caution, wait, turn Copy to the golf. Your T2 golf looks like you're drifting right, of course. Are you correcting? Correcting for the golf. Is T2 golf, you're not even tracking the localizer. I need you to fly. Actually, cancel approach points, climb and maintain 3,000. T2 golf. 3,000. Maintain 3,000. Low altitude alert, minimum vector and altitude in your area, 2,800. Climbing 2 to golf. Greater 4-7, you're over hill, cleared 
VOR or TAC and Alpha approach to Brown. So there are TAC and Alpha approach to Brown, ready to force up. 22 Golf, climb and maintain 3,800. 3,800, group. Raider 47, contact Brown Tower 128.25. Tower 1825, Raider 47, thanks, good night. Good night. 22 Golf, turn right, heading 0 9 or 0, relieve vectors to final. 0 9 or 0, to Golf. 22 Golf, turn right, heading 0 9 or 0, climb immediately, maintain 4000. 4000, climb immediately, to the Golf. Okay, it looks like you're descending, sir. I need to make sure you are climbing, not descending. Golf is climbing. 22 Golf, stay altitude. Uh, 2500, to the Golf. There, 22 Golf, low altitude alert. Climb immediately. Climb the airplane, maintain 5,000. Expedite climb. Climb the airplane, please. There, 22 Golf, just level out the plane or the heading and climb the airplane up to 5,000 when you can, sir. 10 o'clock and a half mile, 1,500. You appear to be descending again, sir. Are you, say, altitude? Yeah, is currently 29 or 78. Copter one two nine air traffic ahead half a mile uh, eastbound. Uh, tower aircraft has crashed uh, about a half mile in front of us into the houses. Helicopter one two nine air turn eastbound. Turn east. Twin Cessna seven zero two two golf SoCal approach. Okay, so there you go. The um, ATC audio of uh, Doctor Daz uh, Das uh, coming in in his Cessna 340 and um, kind of botching up his uh, instrument approach. Um, sounded a little bit confused to me when told, I guess he was going to be landing on 2-3, but flying the approach to 2-8 right, an instrument approach, which is not unusual if the weather conditions are such where you have to track something uh, some type of an approach to get below the clouds, and then you can do a visual maneuver to realign your aircraft with the landing runway. And it sounds to me when he read that back, he, he when he queried about, okay, ILS 28 right, and then he said circle to land 23, and then he, he didn't even use the words in the readback, circle to land. So it sounded like he was a little confused by what he was actually supposed to be doing. And then, of course, the... Uh, issue that he had with uh, intercepting the localizer. It looks like he was just a little bit north of the localizer, came down to intercept it, and maybe turned a little bit too much and didn't quite intercept it and, and got to the right, of course, again, and didn't look like he was correcting, even though the air traffic controller was doing his best to get him steered in the right direction to track the localizer. And then finally, I guess the controller realized that this wasn't going to happen and for him to go ahead and go around and climb. And uh, just uh, Liz, can you show the uh, first overlay? Yeah, there, there his his um, flight aware uh, track from Yuma to uh, the San Diego area, and then the next one, if you don't mind, is the um, altitude speed graph from Flight Aware based on ADSB data, and everything looks all nice and. Well, I'm just really nice and smooth um, for the uh, initial portion of the flight and the cruise portion of the flight and then the initial descent as well. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until he got down close to the intended airport of landing when I believe um, when he was off the localizer and was trying to get it corrected, maybe he didn't set up the autopilot correctly for the approach. 
uh, whatever, it looks to us like he had started uh, to hand fly the aircraft. And that's when everything started going a little wonky as far as the um, the speed, especially uh, the speed goes uh, anywhere from 150, then up to uh, 220, 230 miles per hour, and then drops back down to below 100 miles per hour, and then back up again to almost 200, well, event, eventually 250 or more miles per hour uh, in the spiral descent and subsequent crash. So um, looks, I don't know, what do you all think about the the possibility uh, that this may have been uh, due to that somatographic um, illusion that uh, we've talked about before on the show, where you, can, if you're in instrument conditions and you get a, a big acceleration uh, from your engines, and it feels like that acceleration, your brain thinks is like a, oh, a climbing. major climbing thing, mm-hmm. but you're not really, um, and your natural human reaction is to do the you know do your controls in the opposite direction to con- to stop that really really rapid climb and that and the controller seemed to be saying you know you're supposed to be climbing and he even said i am i'm climbing but he wasn't clearly based mm-hmm. on the data uh, what do you think about this stuff i have a lot of thoughts on this actually and i did um uh I think Jeff or someone in our uh, private chat had shared the uh, Blanco Lirio analysis mm-hmm. of this as well. And I did get to listen to it on the way home. So I did my homework, uh, which is actually very useful um, because he goes into a little bit more detail than we have just from the vast aviation. It's nice to hear the the ATC side of things. Um, you yeah, know, but this is a, a guy who's a, maybe was a cardiologist and like you said, working in the Yuma area, but apparently living in the San Diego area. Um, sounds like this was his commute. You know, I'm not sure there's a lot of... Um, Doctors who kind of work several days on, several days off, or one or two weeks on and one or two weeks off, if they're hospitalist-based, there's just a lot of different ways those things get set up, especially working in a a more underserved area, which I would think Yuma would be a little more on the underserved side. Um, So I take that to mean, and this is a guess on my part, that he should have been reasonably familiar with this route, and perhaps he's been doing it on a regular basis for for some time. I mean, he's got a a commercial... um, license. He's got an instrument rating. He's got his multi-engine certificate. Uh, He's got a very nice uh, Cessna 340 um, that he owns and operates. Um, So I I don't know that it's an experience issue. I don't know how many hours he has or anything like that. that I didn't have that information. Um, But it's it's just odd for someone who you would think, okay, he's probably done this flight before, at least on a semi-regular basis. And he's going into his hometown area, presumably his hometown airport, the airport he's based at, to not be familiar with some of the approaches and the, you know, even if you don't do a lot of actual instrument flying, which, again, I might find kind of hard to believe if he's doing this as a commute and San Diego has a lot of the that marine layer where the ceilings are relatively good, but you have a, a cloud layer that you have to descend through, um, especially if you were at cruise altitude, you know, 10,000 feet, come down through a you know, thousand, 2,000 foot layer of clouds, and then you're back into to VMC conditions. Um one thing that I was thinking of that wasn't really discussed on on Juan Brown's um, channel very much, he went into a lot about the different types of somatographic illusions that you can experience, like we talked about with, you know, accelerating and feeling like you're, um, you're climbing when, in fact, uh, you may be putting in incorrect inputs, not trusting your instruments, getting spatial disorientation. Um, he, to me, he sounded 
confused from the get-go, as you were saying, you know, with the type of approach he was being asked to do. Um, and I have to wonder a lot about fatigue in this case. Um, I don't know how long after his last shift or, or you know, work hours he was attempting this flight. Um, but I can tell you, having worked, you know, eight hours at my day job today, um, I can tell by the end of the day, um, this would, uh, it's just very mentally tasking. You know, your, your brain consumes a lot of glucose dealing with complex patients all day long and trying to formulate various plans of care and, and juggle a hundred different tasks. Um, and then to fly home at the end of that, even if it's the next day, um, sometimes that's, that's, you know, very, very demanding on your awareness level and your alertness level. Um, and it, it, that just makes you that much more likely to be susceptible to these kinds of issues. So I have to wonder about that. Yeah. I was wondering the same thing because as I said, he did sound a little confused and maybe a little, a little foggy, maybe. Um, he sounded a little foggy. He didn't sound yeah. sharp. You expect someone who's a cardiologist and who, you know, um, has all of those ratings to maybe be a little bit sharper in, in what they're doing. Yeah. At the controls. Whenever. And perhaps maybe even a physiological uh, other than fatigue. It, maybe it doesn't have to be fatigue. Kind of you know, if he talked, Ron Brown talked a lot about things he didn't think it was, you know, mm -hmm. there wasn't really a case for carbon monoxide issues mm -hmm. or um, he was only at 10,000 feet. So it shouldn't have been a hypoxia issue. But um, I was actually trying to look up to see how old this particular doctor was. And I'm not, I think he was 64. Um, so you could have any number of physiologic mm -hmm. ailments, you know, that come up mid-flight um that could what's what's that so what are you saying <laughs> um you know people in their 60s should be careful uh, people in general should be careful yeah. um yeah uh you know it's, it's possible that those things can happen to any one of us at any time and um it can really if you're not feeling well for any number of reasons it can really impair your ability to make good decisions or be able to perform as you normally would well, you know, since we're talking about the doctor, um, I have a video that I'd like to play, a little video clip from uh, NBC News 7 in San Diego, if you'll indulge me. More about the pilot in that deadly crash. NBC 7's Ali Rafa is in Yuma, Arizona, where this pilot worked as a cardiologist. The plane's pilot was Dr. Sugata Das, a cardiologist here at Yuma Regional Medical Center for more than 15 years. And while it's still unclear what caused this deadly crash, Dr. Doss is being remembered by colleagues today as an incredible doctor and family man. He was one of the senior members of the medical staff. He has been here quite a while. Uh, so, uh, you know, everybody's kind of feeling a shock right now. Yuma Regional Medical Center's chief medical officer, Dr. Bharat Magoo, says Dr. Doss was an exceptional physician, adding in a statement today that this is a difficult time for everyone at the Yuma Regional Medical Center as they grieve the loss of an amazing physician and friend. Doss's wife, Sujata, declined to speak with NBC7 today after visiting the gated San Diego community where the Doss family lives. Dr. Doss was a passionate aviator, creating his own aviation company, which the twin-engine Cessna C340 that crashed Monday and another plane he owned are registered to. He's listed as a director in an online bio for a foundation that says a, quote, fortuitous incident in 2010 sparked Doss's interest in aviation and that the father of two boys regularly flew between Yuma and San Diego, his family home. Doss attended flight school in San Diego. His testimonial on the flight school's website says his experience with his instructor, quote, spurred the flying bug in one of his sons. So, you know, looking at uh, the 
pictures that they have of Dr. Das. It doesn't look like he is in his 60s. He's very well preserved if he is. Well, those may have been when he was well. a little bit younger. Yeah. <laughs> I think cardiologists probably tend to take reasonable care of themselves. Uh, well, yeah, like doctors wouldn't do anything that would be necessarily bad for their health, like run three marathons in a span Who of a week and a half. Who says that's bad for your health? Oh, I don't know. I didn't say that. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Dr. Jeff. <laughs> I am not a doctor, and I don't uh, even play one on a podcast. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I, I think that kind of, I hadn't seen that particular video before, but um, based on what the reporter was saying, it, it really does sound like he made that trip frequently. He should, he's, um, I would assume he was very familiar with the airspace in San Diego and around that particular airport that he was trying to get to, if that's where his home is. So there's, there's things that don't add up. And um, I, I have strong suspicions, although I don't know any specific details that fatigue played a role or potentially some physiologic ailment um, of some sort caused his confusion, his task saturation, his disorientation, um, and the ultimate tragic ending here. Yeah. We have um, one more little video clip that uh, talks a little bit about one of the other people that lost their life in this accident, a, a UPS truck driver on the ground. We are also learning more about the UPS driver who was killed in the plane crash. Steve Kruger was 60 years old. He was close to retiring. His brother described him as the fun uncle who loved the outdoors. He said Kruger loved his job at UPS and loved people. He said he really enjoyed interacting with all of his customers and was a really positive person even when things were tough. He also talked about the shock of what happened and how it felt to see the burned shell of his brother's UPS truck. My older brother spent two years building an exact replica of a World War I fighter plane. He crashed it twice and survived. And then Steve, driving a UPS truck, gets hit by an airplane. I mean, we're just like, this is, this is, you can't write a movie about this stuff. And that's why some of this is just unbelievably shocking to us. Yeah, well, Steve Kruger would have been 61 next month, and he had plans again to retire within a year. His brother said they'll begin planning a big service to honor him very soon. Our coverage of the... All right, there you go. Um, very sad. Um, the um, He'll be... He was to be, what, soon to be 61 years 61, old. 61, yeah. 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 Um, still, still a very young man. No, absolutely. And it, it sounds like he was a... Yeah. Um, passionate about his his job as well those pictures were actually really um i don't know they were they were fun he was him water skiing with ups packages and skiing and um yeah i'm sure sure he'll be missed by family and friends alike he looked great for his age too yeah Yeah. absolutely i need to get out there and do some more exercise or something i can help with that or maybe uh, no i don't need your help with that I think I need to start dying. I can, I can my write hair you too. some exercise plans. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I, I've seen Pilot Pip uh, after he's run a marathon. Doesn't seem to do him much good. <laughs> Not Doom my band. words, Pip. I thought you looked great. I didn't see you right afterwards, but we chatted but a bit and you seemed fine to me. We're sure you looked marvelous. Uh, he did. He, he was marvelous. at least one foot out of the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anything else to. Uh, to say about this i think we um did you uh get a chance to put up that overlay liz of the uh security camera that showed the uh, airplane in its last couple of seconds uh, before it crashed uh, i think i had that as an overlay maybe not have that? Oh, here? yeah there you go 
There's a little red circle around the uh, Cessna uh, 340 uh, just shortly before it uh, impacted. And uh, there's the uh, a picture of the airplane itself, 7022 Golf, and the uh, UPS uh, truck, what's left of it. Wow. So very sad. Very you, sad. You, by the look of that aircraft, one wing down, uh, the, the weather in the area is not awful. No, uh, no. And I mean, it looks like there was a fair gap of visual flight conditions mm-hmm. between the cloud base and mm-hmm. the the surface. So, you know, even if he had been disorientated, when you come out of cloud disorientated, one glimpse of the real world, and, and you're, you're right reorientated like that. Yeah. So I just wonder what attitude. He's either in a very severe attitude when he came out and he just couldn't roll the aircraft fast enough or, or pitch it fast enough. That, or there noted. was something else going on because it doesn't. Right. This doesn't look like the attitude of someone who's been, you know, uh, a few hundred feet in visual flight conditions. Because right. you know, but normally you would have got pretty close. I would have thought to get an airplane back to wings level and at least yeah. be starting to pull for the horizon. Mm-hmm. So there's that, Sorry. and there's a notable lack of communications from him um, at the end of the fast aviation yeah. ATC. So I'm wondering if an autopsy, if once possible, uh, yeah. might reveal something. But otherwise, I, 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 I understand the correlation between uh, the accelerations and his height keeping. They're almost perfectly inverse of each other, which we, you would expect. If uh, he was reacting to an acceleration or deceleration uh, illusion and not obeying his instruments, but uh, I think there might have been more to that uh, than just a straightforward disorientation. Yeah. I agree. I suspect you're right. Hopefully, we'll find out in the future. Mm. Okay, let's continue with uh, item number nine. Item number. Item letter <laughs> D. Um, this is from Nigel and he says, hi crew. It seems British airways saying that they would sell slots was enough to get the union back to the table and they've now reached an agreement. So basically he said it was a deal. Then it wasn't. Now it is again. And this is an article from the independent and, uh, the, uh, British airways reaches agreement with pilots over Gatwick short haul subsidiary. The vast majority of British Airways short-haul flights from the West Sussex Airport have been suspended since March of 2020 due to the pandemic. They reached an agreement with pilots over a potential short-haul subsidiary uh, at Gatwick. Pilots Union uh, BALPA or BALPA said its members had approved a revised offer on pay and working hours after an initial proposal was rejected last month. The decision does not mean that the new subsidiary will definitely go ahead as BA is yet to reach agreements with other parties, such as cabin crew. We would hope to begin operations next summer, according to a representative. And let's see, Rob Burgess, editor of frequent flyer website headforpoints.com, said the carrier might be able to employ cabin crew, ground staff, and other airport support staff at a cheaper rate than it can with the main British Airways staff. He added that the deal with pilots means it's now highly likely that the subsidiary will be launched. It would start up with up to 17 Airbus A320 aircraft based at Gatwick in summer 2022, which would be a smaller presence than the airline had in 2019. More planes would be added in line with growing demand over the following three to four years. What do you think, Nick? Uh, Hard to say without getting more details on what the deal was, quite honestly, and we're never going to find out. 
Um, uh, you know, historically, uh, Gatwick-based uh, pilots uh, in British Airways have generally been on a on a lower pay deal than what they considered the mainline pilots at Heathrow. Uh, but the union was always trying to uh, obtain parity. It was working very hard, and it. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of the BA pay scales, but they may have actually done it before the pandemic. I don't know. But um, it sounds like that two-tier uh, deal is back in in play now, which I think is a, is a real shame for the airline. It uh, it's not just going to be pay, isn't it? It's going to be conditions of uh, service and perks and all the rest. Um, but uh, I, I guess there are an awful lot of unemployed pilots in the UK at the moment. So uh, the Pilots Union have got very little to work with when it comes to trying to uh, push a better deal through. And they would rather have some of their pilots employed than none. So, yeah. I make a, a good point there regarding the, it's not just the pay scale, it's working conditions. We learned that um, when we were, um, Acme was going through bankruptcy and we were negotiating with the company uh, for, you know, the terms of our uh, concessionary contract. And we learned from United Airlines and American Airlines that uh, you have to be very careful about your working conditions uh, in addition to the uh, amount of pay that you're cutting. And uh, they learned the hard way that that was very important. And, and so uh, we, we took that with us and were able to negotiate um, pretty yeah. close to the same kind of working rules that we had beforehand, before the uh, bankruptcy. But, you know, the pay did, of course, uh, was almost cut in half. But our working condition, conditions were still pretty, pretty good. So, yeah. yeah. And those working conditions are often very hard to get because quite often the company can't afford to up or say they can't afford to up a pay scale, but they'll offer something else in lieu of. And it might be additional staff travel rights. It might be a bit extra on, patient, on your pension, or it might be something else in kind, which is very valuable to you. So if you don't negotiate the entire deal, then you're going to miss out. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Finally, let's. Nope. nope. Last. Not the, the Russian freighter. And oh, I said finally. Like, I'm sorry, Liz. It said oh, final report was the uh, title of this news item. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, dog. Final. <laughs> yeah. Final. Okay. It's the last one. Uh, the next item in our news notebook is uh, this final report an accident. That occurred uh, when? On the 4th of October in 2019, a couple of years ago. Um, the and It's an interesting headline from the uh, Aviation Herald, I believe. Yeah. Unconscious descent below the glide path and ground impact. Um, hmm, not sure it was you unconscious. The, the <laughs> descent below glide path was not done intentionally? Yeah, like, I think it was maybe unintentional, unintentional descent? descent below the glide path. It might be a factor of Austrian to English kind of uh, uh, thing going the on Austrian there. Austrian language? You yeah. Mean German. Or German. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Sorry. All right. <laughs> the original narrative. Hey, I'm not perfect. <laughs> Who is? Uh, the original narrative uh, went like this. Uh, a, a UAA Ukraine Air Alliance Antonov AN-12 freighter registration uniform Romeo Charlie Alpha Hotel performing flight 4050 from uh, Vigo, Spain. Is that right? Vigo or Vigo? 
Vigo, I'd say, Vigo. Uh, to Lviv, uh, Ukraine, with seven crew and one passenger and a cargo of 13 tons consisting of car parts, was an approach to Lviv uh, about 7.4 nautical miles before the airport when the aircraft disappeared from radar. The aircraft was subsequently found on the ground about 0.8 nautical miles before the runway in soil and vegetation near a soccer stadium and a cemetery where the crew had attempted an emergency landing due to running out of fuel. Five occupants were killed. Three occupants were taken to hospitals with injuries. Now, that was shortly after this crash occurred in 2019. Come to find out that uh, fuel was not a factor in this. They they did have fuel on the aircraft. And on the 8th of October of this year, uh, the final report was issued, including uh, concluding the probable causes of the accident were uh, collision of a serviceable aircraft with the ground during landing approach and dense fog, the crew's failure to perform the flight in the instrument conditions, uh, I think they mean perform it properly and, and successfully in instrument conditions due to the probable physical excessive fatigue, which led to an unconscious descent of the aircraft below the glide path and ground impact. And again, we said probably an unintentional descent below glide path and ground impact. The NBAAI reported all engines and propellers were service, serviceable at the time of the accident. Uh, the fuel system was serviceable and supplied fuel as needed for takeoff mode at the time of accident until the aircraft came to a rest. No defects or technical malfunctions were found with the aircraft or any of its systems. During takeoff from Vigo, the takeoff mass possibly exceeded the maximum takeoff mass by as much as 5,400 kilograms. The fuel remaining while in approach to Lviv did not permit to divert to Kiev Boraspol. The crew depart, so they had that pressure there. They they kind of burned more fuel than they were anticipating, and the fuel that they did have uh, for available for going to an alternate in case the weather was bad at the um, destination airport, uh, they basically burned through it. So they were under pressure to uh, make this uh, instrument approach in kind of poor conditions, low visibility, low ceilings. Um, also, it says uh, they did not have their necessary rest. They did not comply with the regulations regarding work hours and rest times. Uh, the NBAAI reported there were 650 kilograms of fuel re- uh, remaining during the accident approach. That was the uh, uh, another okay? acorn or people throwing rocks <laughs> oh. at my steel roof uh, about and it still it still makes me jump. Uh, about 170 liters of fuel could be drained from the wing tanks of the wreckage. The wing tanks had not been damaged. Due to the absence of the flight assignment logbook calculations of takeoff weight and aircraft CG performed by the crew before departure, the investigation team could not accurately establish that the aircraft takeoff weight or, or accurately establish the aircraft takeoff weight and CG. But taking into account the information received, from the Vigo airport about the commercial cargo weight, documents of the cargo, the amount of fuel uh, filled, and information received from the cockpit crew communication. The investigation team calculated that to take the takeoff weight of the aircraft during departure could make 66,400 kilograms. And according to the Antonov AN-12BK aircraft flight operation manual, the maximum takeoff weight shall be 61,000 kilograms. So it looks like they were overweight when they took off. Hence the higher fuel burn than they had planned for. Uh, they 
uh, analyze that the aircraft performance uh, until climbing through 6,600 meters suggested the aircraft was overloaded. The aircraft reached initial flight level, flight level 240, 96 minutes after departure. Wow, that's a long time. And climbed to cruise flight level 250, another 86 minutes later. Um, so the crew was coming into the airport uh, final approach. They requested clearance from the controller to descend to 12, uh, flight level 120. And having received clearance, began the descent landing approach using the radar vectoring method as instructed by the controller. There were no deviations in the operation of the engines based on the results of the FDR decoding and according to the crew reports based on the results of CVR decoding. Uh, the height over at, well, a little bit later, the height over the runway 31 threshold was 1170 meters. Descent rate minus four to minus four and a half meters per second. Flight speed, 352 kilometers per hour, distance 15.7 kilometers. At uh, a distance of 16.1 to 14.7, the aircraft in the process of descent completed the turn and entered the final. At a distance of 11 kilometers, the aircraft is 70 meters above the glide path. So they started out a little bit high. Um, let's see, the vertical rate of descent was minus 6.5 meters per second. And uh, it's approximately 196 feet per uh, minute, I believe, um, per one meter per second. So you can do the math. There is a, kind of a high rate of descent. Uh, the aircraft de decreased uh, the descent and approached the glide path. Okay, we're good. We're, go we're about to intercept the glide path from above and we should be set, right? The crew reported on the localizer beam for the ILS approach to runway 31. The controller instructed to continue the ILS approach to runway 31. The mean vertical descent rate was four to four and a half meters per second. At um, a little while later, the crew extended the landing gear at a distance of 13.9 kilometers, according to recorders. And then it has a little note here about what the aircraft flight manual says about when the landing gear should be extended um, etc. I don't, I don't think it's really too pertinent, really. Um, they began to deploy flaps to 15 degrees. Their instrument speed was 326 kilometers per hour. And, uh, I don't, you know, this note here didn't make any sense to me. According to the flight operation manual, when approaching the landing, the flaps shall be deployed in three stages, 15, 25, and 35. The maximum flight speed with flaps at 15 shall be 340 kilometers per hour. Well, they were doing 326, so they were below that maximum flight speed. So uh, it says, the, thus the flaps were extended at a lower speed than established by the flight operation manual. But that's at the maximum. That's a limit usually, not a... Right, it's not a low speed limit, it's a high speed a limit. high speed limit. Yeah, yeah I'm wondering I'm, if that uh, it should read minimum flight speed with flaps 15 rather than maximum. Maybe. Be. Maybe. Could be. Yeah. But I don't know. That, that's the only thing that makes sense to me there. Right, unless they just had a misunderstanding of what that op flight operation note meant um yeah anyway i was kind of scratching my head on that one i think well why are they even making that point because they were below that max speed but yeah. anyway uh after the flaps were deployed by 15 degrees one of the crew members the flight engineer reported the aircraft configuration 15 landing gear extended landing weight 53 uh, i guess fifty three thousand tons i'm guessing um thousand tons that's I mean, quite heavy uh, i'm sorry 53, <laughs> 53 tons 53 tons my bad at a distance of leave me alone at a distance of 10.64 kilometers to the glide slope beacon, additionally flaps were extended by 20. The flight speed was 316. Let's get down to the, uh, let's see, 
at a distance of eight kilometers from the glide slope beacon, the uh, aircraft reaches the glide path. At a distance of 7.9 kilometers, the aircraft crosses the glide path and continues to gradually descend below the glide path. Okay, so there, there's the glide path. Okay, now they're below the glide path. At that time, the internal engines, the inside engines, I guess, were operating. Well, it doesn't matter. I don't even understand what the what that means. Um, during the descent, it's necessary to balance the aircraft with the trim so that the aircraft steadily man- maintains the specified flight mode. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the crew extended the flaps to 35 degrees. The aircraft was below the glide path and continued to descend three to four seconds after the flaps were extended. The thrust of the uh, external engines, I'm assuming again, that means the outside, the outboard engines increased and the vertical rate of descent began to increase. So the descent kept increasing. Um, according to the flight operation manual, I don't think that's going to matter here. Let me see. At a distance of 2.86 kilometers from the runway threshold, the crew increased the thrust mode of the external engines 42 to 43. I guess it's a power setting by the engine torque meter while the vertical descent rate was four to five meters per second, which exceeds the rate established for the LVIV aerodrome. The aircraft moved below the glide path by 65 meters. The actual altitude was 105 meters. After seven to eight seconds, the vertical rate increases again. The aircraft descended further below the glide path. The operating mode of the engines. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna fast forward here a little bit further. Here's a lot of data. Um, None of which appears to be particularly relevant. I'm no, confused. I mean, all of it's basically to say that they descended below the glide slope. They increased their rate of descent. They did not correct it, and they impacted the ground short of the runway? Yes. About five, okay. let's see, um, let's see, okay, at, at a height of about 30 meters, okay, that's what, about 100 feet over the runway threshold, two to three seconds before collision with trees, the elevator deviates to pitching up to about 75% of the max value, but these actions were not enough to reduce the vertical speed. And the aircraft continued to descend with a vertical speed of six meters per second, which is 1181 feet per minute. I did the calculations on that because these meters per second things didn't weren't making. Thank you for doing that because that means nothing to me. Yeah. So 1181 second. feet per minute. We were kind of familiar with that kind of a descent That's rate. A That's a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. I mean, you should be at the most like at, at that speed, maybe 600, 700 feet per minute or so yeah. on a normal three degree glide path. Yeah. At a height of five to seven meters from the ground surface, and that's really close to the ground. What? That's uh, 25 feet, 20, 25 feet. At a distance of 5,000 feet from the threshold of the runway, they collided Ooh. with trees. They're way below the glide path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was it. So it wasn't fuel starvation. Uh, engines were yeah. operating fine. Props were operating fine. They had fuel. Uh, they went through the glide path and didn't seem... Well, it looks like they made an effort to... Probably when they saw the ground, when they broke out of whatever low cloud layer at, uh, what was that, 100 feet? Yeah, very low. But you know, but the engines along, before they broke out, the engines, it looks like they were making an attempt to add power, but it just wasn't enough to mm-hmm. really arrest the descent sufficient. rate. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think we also kind of speculated, didn't we, when we were talking about this a couple of years ago, that... They were carrying car parts, and there was something about uh, contraband, and you know maybe it wasn't really car parts, or if it was, you know they were like heavier than you know they were supposed. You know I, I remember that I discussion remember that. about this, 
when we when we saw this originally. But um, yeah, it turns out that except for the possibility of the that it was overloaded a bit, um, it looks to me like just fatigue the major factor here. They didn't they didn't they get didn't enough fly rest. The glide slope. Yeah, they just kind of. They saw that they were below the glide path. They made a little effort to con- to correct for yeah. it, and then yeah. they they were just weren't really. <laughs> that's weren't good really enough. into so, it. Yeah. That's fine. So here's a few thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're pitching up at an airfield where the weather is uh, poor, uh, and um, you're en route, and you're picking up the weathers and thinking ahead, there are plenty of opportunities before you get to the point where you can no longer divert, where you can go. Weather's not looking good here. We haven't got enough fuel. Let's go to an alternate while we still have the fuel to do that. Mm -hmm. Once you commit to go to an airfield and you won't have fuel to divert, you've got to be sure that the weather is good enough for you to land. So that's mistake number one, and it's a real big one in in my book. Once you've uh, established that you are going to have to land, if you're going to fly an approach that you must land off because you're so low on fuel, you can't go anywhere else, you've got to fly it well. Finally, uh, and to me, the one of the biggest sins was uh, at an altitude of 60 metres, the radio altimeter alarm decision altitude was triggered. They flew through their decision altitude without being able to see the ground or the runway or anything. Now, even if you've, uh, you know, can't divert, you can still go around and fly another approach. Perhaps the weather will have picked up a bit, but you don't press below your decision altitude. Certainly, if you're not certain that you're on the glide slope and not flying the approach particularly well, uh, once uh, you know you hit that decision altitude and you can't see the ground, you go around, have another go. You might have fuel for that. You might fly the approach better next time. That, there were some definitely weird and and, and wrong things, wrong thinking on, on the flight the, deck, some poor flying as well. Do you know if the times they listed were local times? Because it's like three o'clock in the I'm morning. I'm not sure. I was wondering that, about that too. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I have a feeling it was um, probably dark. Yes. Dark and poor weather. Poor yeah. weather, dark. Maybe they were just thinking, you know, if we just duck down enough, we'll probably break out and then we'll be able to that's continue from that. I mean, that's not, <laughs> not a good idea. But they may <laughs> have been at that point, as you said, Nick, they made those big mistakes by not diverting somewhere else on the way to this airport and then they basically committed themselves and said this and is it compounded it with even bigger mistakes yeah yeah hmm. but i mean you can you can have a look go down to decision altitude you got fuel to make another approach fine go around set it up again say right this this time guys we've got to try and land the airplane off this approach we've no more fuel to do another one that's the one that you crash on yeah, you you don't crash with enough fuel to have another <laughs> go, right? When you crash, you don't want a big fireball. Exactly, that's yeah. another good reason for it. But you know, at least you've got your brain. You've had a had a go. You've you've established that you know this is not going to work. Let's go around, uh, set it up, take our time, make sure this is the best instrument approach we'll ever fly, and perhaps we'll get away with it. I you know I, I sense that everybody in that cockpit were sensing the fact how really bad this situation was because it doesn't really talk about the crew communication like anybody saying hey go around you know you're you're no. well below the glide it was like everybody was no. quiet from what i can yeah, tell uh, and that minimum sleeping uh, yeah. call out 
uh, that no one on the flight deck commented that they'd mm-hmm. just gone through minimums without being able to see the runway environment. No one said a thing. So either they all in you know knew that they had to land off this approach, or they were regular busters of minimums and of regulations, and or the skipper. Uh, you know, just one of those pilots that wouldn't listen to his crew so they didn't bother. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that's the case, really. Right. But that is a possibility. And the other thing is a possibility, I'm just saying, maybe they were listening to one of our episodes of the airline. (laughs) They all fell right asleep. Uh, Well, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. uh, I hope no one ever does that when they're flying. (laughs) Or driving. Unless you're a passenger. Or driving. (laughs) Oh boy! And uh, Mr. Boxes says that classic minimums, yeah, gives you a heartbeat to try and catch yeah. the lights. But they were never going to yeah. see the lights at that altitude anyway. They were. Oh, hey, it's minimum. There it is. And you can always. We're going green. No, that's not it. Let me try this one. We need that one later on. There we go. Yes, you can. Shift G. If you haven't got any fuel (laughs) left. Yeah, Yeah, well, most of the time. Maybe not always. Yeah. Pretty much always. Pretty much always. Absolutely. Yeah. Very sad. Very sad. Last last one quickly because we got to get to the getting to know you. Uh, Okay. Last one. Uh, Scrapped Air India jet gets stuck under a bridge. (laughs) Um, Okay. This is from yahoo.news.com. This is the extraordinary moment. A huge Boeing plane got stuck underneath a bridge while being driven on the motorway. Well, you shouldn't have been driving the Boeing on huge a highway. <laughs> That's dumb. Anyway, footage from the Gurugram Delhi Highway in North India shows the nose of the aircraft and half of its body under the iron footbridge with the rest of the plane firmly lodged near the wing area towards the back of the plane. A trailer had been driving the unused Air India plane at 1.15 a.m. on Sunday morning to its new owner, but it became lodged below the bridge halfway through the journey. Have you shown? There we go. (laughs) So incredible to me is that it made it this far under the bridge. Yeah. Like, what did it... Oh, is there like a... Something on the fuselage that it then finally got stuck on. Uh, perhaps it was like at a the, slight angle. Yeah, maybe, but, yeah, uh, a little bit angled. Did it have a fin? Well, that would have been their next issue. <laughs> 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 For sure, that would have stopped them. So I'm assuming that they, yeah, the uh, the tail fin was gone. Uh, looks like they okay. must have cut the fuselage off from the from the back. I, I love I love the spokesman for Air India when he says Air India has no connection whatsoever <laughs> with the aircraft under any circumstances, <laughs> except it was an Air India aircraft. Apart from that, we have absolutely no connection. <laughs> yes, we, was, we wash our hands of this. Yes, it's yes. not ours anymore. It may say Air we India all it. over it. And <laughs> they screwed it up. They're thinking, uh, hmm, next time we do this, let's make yeah, sure that we paint, paint over that. Wait, the, re- the rest of his quote is great, too, though. It appears to be a scrapped plane, and the driver may have made an error while transporting <laughs> oh, really? it. May oh, have. Uh, and just in case you thought it was Delhi Airport's fault, the aircraft certainly does not belong to Delhi Airport. <laughs> no, nobody is claiming ownership of this airplane. Hands <laughs> off. Nothing to do with us, sir. Not ours. No. Nothing to see here. It's Go hot away. Potato. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, All the sloopy shoulder. Oh. Yeah. So uh, we thought we'd end the news segment with a with a uh, something funny. 
I guess, instead of all these crashes. Neil reckons they got at least 50% under the bridge. That's (laughs) that's a good result. Good point. Very good result. Sometimes uh, hitting the 50% uh, barrier is not quite good Sometimes it's a really hard barrier. Yeah. Just a firm stop. Or maybe somebody lowered that bridge. I don't know. You know, mm. I don't think it's a movable uh, bridge. Uh, quick, quick. <laughs> Lower the bridge. Yes. All right. But if we, they're going to scrap it anyway, what does it matter? They, just, they were just helping with them, with the yeah. scrapping procedure. I don't know that they meant yeah. to scrap the bridge, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the bridge the probably bridge okay. got a little damaged. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. We are now going to cover that segment which we call getting to know us which is what we do each week to kind of find out what each of us have been up to and by the way uh don't believe i mentioned it yet uh but the reason why miami rick isn't with us is because he is out there doing his job making money and flying airplanes and stuff uh, for you all that you've ordered from amazon and stuff Anyway, he is going to join me. Oh, wait. Nope. Oh, he's ironing. Yeah, he's he's ironing. ironing. Thank you, Uh, Liz. Still? Yeah. Well, you know, he likes his shirts nice and crisply ironed. There's going to be no cotton left in that shirt (laughs) if he keeps doing that. Um, He goes through shirts. So Rick and I are going to get together tomorrow and uh, do a part two. So uh, please. Well, you better give him a shirt inspection when he comes on. I'll, I'll do that. All right. Uh, Rick and I will in, uh, do that tomorrow, and anybody else who might be available, uh, you're welcome to join us. So let's uh, talk about what's been happening. I'm going to go again. I'm going to go first because, um, and Steph probably definitely the last because she's been the one that has been doing the most stuff, I think. Um, I was uh, on a three-day trip, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're recording this on a Thursday, so I got back on Wednesday yesterday. Had layovers in Omaha and Myrtle Beach and had a good trip uh, flying with uh, one of my favorite uh, first officers, Brent. And uh, we did not really find... Hey, Brent. No uh, no barbecue or no... Well, uh, we... Yeah. In Myrtle Beach? The, the, in Omaha. You know, you, but Omaha is really, I guess, not known for barbecue. Um, so we didn't find any there. Um, and we went to a sports bar and had some really spicy wings and some mediocre, uh, nachos and stuff. But, uh, in Myrtle beach, we ended up going to a place called like sweet Carolinas or something like that. I think I have a feeling it's a chain, but, uh, had, I had some, a sandwich that had some brisket in it, but it wasn't not really that great. So, oh, well, but, um, yeah, was well, that right by the uh, the airport there in that well, no, newer area? No, we usually, um, and especially the kind of trips that I fly, we're usually away from the airport. And this was a little area they call Broadway by the beach. And it's oh, like okay. a bunch of yeah. shops and stuff mm-hmm. that go around this uh, yep. like little pond. And uh, that's, that's almost like a little, it reminded me of that. What is that thing called near Disney, like Dis- downtown Disney or something downtown like that? Downtown Disney, yeah. yeah. Kind of reminded me of that. Um, there's a lot of like mini golf and places. yeah, is that a lot, yeah. of, a lot of that sort of yeah. stuff, Ferris wheel and they have helicopters, yeah. um, yeah. taking, giving people rides and that kind of thing. Anyway. So, uh, it was a, a nice walk to and from the hotel, a little over a mile each way, which was good. At least we got some exercise. Um, and that's about it for my trip. And, um, Oh, uh, someone named Gubby, I believe he's with us. 
in the live audience. He's up there in Ottawa. And he said, uh, anyone available for a meetup? He said, happy to organize it, but could you maybe ask if any APGers are up for getting together in the Ottawa region? Loving the show. Keep it up. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> He's going along with the whole <laughs> shtick, um, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, like Captain Nick, I'm an XRAF, or I'm XRAF. I'm now in the RCAF, the Royal Canadian Air Force, here in Ottawa. He spells with a D oh, really? and a W. And he said, see all the there's, there's a W in Ottawa. After, oh, after the rumors about you leaving the RAF, Cabby, uh, I'm surprised the Canadians let you in. But what? I shouldn't say anymore. Should <laughs> You're not discriminating, Liz said. Not very discriminating. <laughs> yeah. Um, there you go. Uh, so, hey, if you are interested in uh, getting together with Gubby in Ottawa for a meetup, he has allowed us to give his email address, which is probably a huge mistake, but he said it was okay. And uh, I'm guessing that maybe he flew helicopters because his uh, email address is Huey Meister at hotmail.com. Huey being H U E. That's him vomiting. Oh, is it? Oh, Huey. Oh, okay. It has nothing to do with the Huey helicopter. I don't think so. No. H U E Y M E I S T E R. Huey Meister at hotmail. Dot com. So yeah. if you want to contact Gubby and get together uh, with uh, some like-minded APGers there in Ottawa, that would be fantastic. We'd and love to tell them to record something. And make sure if you do that you record something and take some pictures like uh, someone did in yeah. uh, another meetup that uh, just occurred recently, which we'll get to in the feedback section. So uh, that's, that's cool. I hope uh, that You'll be able to organize something, Gabby. What's that uh, very dark, very uh, weird German drink, something Meister? That Jägermeister. People... Jägermeister. Jägermeister. There hmm. you go. You need to have a Jägermeister. Oh. Jäger bombs up. for everybody. Maybe that's why that's he was a Huey yeah. Meister. <laughs> yes, exactly what I was thinking. Too many Jägermeisters. Yes, I will have his email in the show notes, Liz. Thank you. And then if, if that fails, then, you know, you can always send something to us and we can try to coordinate or forward it or whatever. But we'd rather you just go directly to Gubby and uh, get that done so we can. Yeah. And if you do, have fun. Oh, look. UH1D. He, he did with fly the Luftwaffe. The Huey. Oh, with the Luftwaffe. Huey wow. Meister, the Meister being a German word for master, right? Mm. He has been around. Yeah, he has been around, Liz. Watch out. All right. Um, he can he can rub his tummy and pat his head at the same time. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about this before. I usually forget this, but uh, I'm not going to forget it this week because it's a huge uh, image in my getting to know us notebook. I'm getting it. I'm getting there. And uh, Liz is working on getting the overlay. There it is. Oh. That was the cover art for our last episode, which was entitled Wakey Wakey. Now I don't know. They say that that's something that is uh, a meme in, um, in 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 England and Europe and such. Uh, not really sure. I've heard of that over here. No, if it's a meme, US. but you've definitely heard wakey wakey. Well, I've heard wakey wakey. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, one thing no one nobody commented on was the the hammer that was ringing the alarm bell <laughs> is Adam Spink. Adam Spink. Oh, nobody I see. It's has the top spotted of the tower. that. I, yeah, yeah. We yeah. I saw it once you once you mentioned it. Yeah, and so is that because he has such a hard head? 
No, that's because it's the air traffic control tower, and because he has a hard head. Oh, yes. it's an air traffic control tower. Then we have tower. Jeff, Jeff's pink Well, that's, that's the Heathrow yeah. air traffic control tower with the alarm clock on it instead. Ah, I see. And, of course, Adam would be up there ringing the bells anyway. Uh-huh. And right. because it's got Steph's Jeep, a new right. colored Jeep. A hot pink uh, Jeep that is not really airplane. a Jeep. Uh, it's an airplane that airlines, says it's yeah. a Jeep. <laughs> well, we, well, we, we are an aviation show. Yeah. And there's a big cock in it. Well, <laughs> yes. If you want to see that, you should uh, check out the show notes or or subscribe to our show, maybe. <laughs> and uh, and what a... Yes. Oh, shoot. Uh, it's got a big clock and a big cock. <laughs> Very impressive. Yeah. You can just say goodbye to that PG rating now for this show. I know. <laughs> I can't find the one and what a... Here it is. And what a beautiful cock it is. Yes. There Thank you, you Steph. Go. It's lovely. All right. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. 16 inches high. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> All right. What could we say? Yeah. Uh, that's bad. I always feel say. inadequate <laughs> when I hear that. <laughs> That's segue all. Over to Nick. Segue over to Nick. That's all I have to say. And uh, now, Nick, we're we're going to go to you, and you can tell us what's been happening with you. Uh, okay, uh, an interesting week, uh, nice and quiet, and got on with plain tales and things. Uh, but today, um, I had a, a meeting with uh, our lovely friend from PTUK, uh, the great Neville Bounce, and uh, we were wandering over to uh, Fast. Uh, which is a very quick museum. It takes only <laughs> two yeah. seconds to look around. No, I'm joking. Fast is the um, Farnborough. Uh, I had it here a second ago. The Farnborough Air Sciences Trust Museum. It's not the Fast rings that comes straight off the tongue, doesn't it? But the actual what it stands for, not not quite so. So, uh, Air Sciences Trust Museum. So, we know that, uh, we mentioned it lots of times, uh, that the Royal Aircraft Establishment uh, was based at Farnborough, a fantastically historic uh, organisation. And um, this is a museum of various artefacts that they've managed to collect. uh, And uh, we had a good look round, which was absolutely fabulous. Um, I got to lean on an aeroplane. It was me leaning on an aeroplane. Now, there's a bit of significance there because, I don't know, more years than I care to think about, that was me leaning on a very similar aeroplane. Very similar. Yes, that's definitely me. Uh, So they're they're both fallen nets. Now, the significance of that fallen net is that it was the very first fallen net I ever flew in. Wow. Yeah, same airplane, absolutely the same. And I went, "Wow, you've got the same ride." I I only flew it twice, but that was on and it's my been in that museum uh, ever since. <laughs> yeah, ever since it was wrecked, <laughs> never flew again. They said, "You lot can have it." Anyway, that was great. So I had a look around there uh, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, super to to uh, see the old fallen net again. Uh, they very nicely opened up uh, a Harrier. And I sat in a Harrier, as did Neville. But he looks a lot better sitting in it than I did, I'm sure, actually. So there's Neville gripping his stick. Uh, so they're having a great job. <laughs> mm. Seems like uh, and had we had a, a, a look around the museum, which has some... It's not a huge museum, but it's very hands-on. And they've got lots of cockpits to look around. They've got like 
three or four simulators, including a Concorde simulator um, and um, a Spitfire simulator. Uh, so, uh, absolutely fabulous place. And there, I, I had that picture. There is uh, was really primarily for Rick, because here's the thing about jet engines. And that is uh, uh, um, Whittle, one of the very first uh, jet engines ever made, uh, W2, the number 10. So I'm assuming it's the 10th version of the, uh, the Whittle W2. Um, brilliant. And then um, we did look at this room here. Now, this is a beautiful conference room. Uh, and I thought, well, oh, that's very fancy. Lovely big tab conference table in the middle, lots of seating. And it was explained to me that this is now called the Trenchard Room. And this was um, Lord Trenchard's office. And it was in that office that he formed the Royal Air Force. Trenchard is known as the father of the Royal Air Force. And uh, it was in that office that the arrangements were made to change the Royal Flying Corps into the Royal Air Force, uh, the world's longest continuous serving Air Force. Um, wow. So that that's a great deal of history. The whole building has an enormous history. You'll hear more of it later. And you'll also hear more about that room and have a chance possibly to visit and join us there for a very special occasion. Uh, more of that later, because we haven't really decided where, when, how, why, and all the details. So we'll let you know more about that in the future. But it was a lovely recce and very nice to see the Fast Museum. Thank you very much indeed for George. You can see they're looking out the window, uh, who is the curator of the museum, and for uh, Phil, the scientist who um, arranged the visit. Uh, Phil, we met at the Farnborough, sorry, the Fair Oaks meetup uh, a few weeks back, and uh, he wanted to get my take on a trial that I did uh, there at Farnborough. Uh, called Joust, which was one that he was uh, very much involved in uh, setting up and organising uh, uh, all about um, the design and capabilities of future aircraft. So, uh, you know, it was they had a lot of the team that that organised and set up that trial there, and we had a little meeting and chatted about the days. It was, uh, it was quite a few years ago now. So, uh, but it was it was great to see everyone, and uh, hopefully they got some. A good gen out of uh, that meeting. Uh, so anyway, uh, more. H hold yourselves uh, in readiness for uh, future announcements regarding that. That room looks like it could be useful to you us in the future. I, I think it might be. <laughs> I think it might be. So let's let's should we keep tease. it under our hats for the moment. Yes. Okay. Very good. Very good. Anything else, sir? Or shall we move That's on now to uh, Steph? Steph, have you been doing anything at all no, in nothing. the last uh, week no, or so? Very, no, very, very boring. Okay. I had three days off of work at home. That was uh, really a luxury. I can't remember the last time I've taken off of work and stayed at home. Hmm. Um, but then after that, is Nick trying to say something to me? Yeah. Three oh. days off? Is that because you were too tired to get out of bed? No, I was out of bed. <laughs> I did a lot of things, actually. Oh, I, uh, well, tell um, us more. No, I was just productive around the house. I went through, I cleaned some stuff, and um, uh, it was just a bunch of to-do things that I've been neglecting for a very, very long time at my house. Um, so that was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, what day did we do the show last week? We definitely talked about um, 
I'd been in the UK and met up with Nick and ran the London Marathon, and I got back home on Monday. Um, and then I guess one of those days, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, <laughs> we did the show. Um, but then Friday, back out on the road again. Um, I I did mention in the last show I had two more marathons to run last weekend. It's going to be three world marathon majors in eight days. So I did London on Sunday the 3rd, um, Chicago on um, Sunday the 10th, and then Boston on Monday the 11th. Um, and, a, and a 5K in Chicago on Saturday morning, too. Yeah, sure. Wow. <laughs> as you do. They have it set up as kind of a shakeout run, and I run it everywhere with my brothers. Although one of my brothers forgot to sign up, so boo on him. Um, Joe and I ran it, though, and had a great time. Um, but Friday, I had to go to Boston first. You're going, Steph, why are you going to Boston first? You have to run Chicago first, not Boston. Yes, well, in London, um, and I actually didn't end up taking advantage of this, but they allowed um, you to designate someone else to pick up your, your bib and your drop off your gear at the expo if you weren't able to make it. Um, no such luck in uh, Boston and Chicago. Uh, you have to go yourself to the expo because they wanted – um, your in-person uh, verification of either vaccination status or negative COVID testing, which they would do right there on the spot if you were not vaccinated. Um, fortunately, Boston had a very efficient system set up. So I waited, I don't know, close to maybe an hour to get in to the expo in London on Saturday afternoon because that was just a really busy time. Um, but I went up to Boston Friday morning, um, basically got off the plane I took a water taxi uh, over into the city, uh, which was actually it was a beautiful day for it. It was like 70-something degrees, uh, really uh, sunny, nice weather. Um, and the reason I did the water taxi was because they offered luggage storage with the cost of your round-trip ticket. And I didn't want to tote my rollerboard suitcase all through Boston and on the train and over into the expo. It just seemed like a big hassle, even though I saw some other people doing it as well. Um so yeah, stored my luggage with the, the water taxi folks, took the train over to, I forget where the, uh, you had to go to uh, some tents they had set up in Copley Square first and do your vaccine verification, and then walk down the street to the Heinz Convention Center, pick up your bib, um, got all of that done, um, and then started to make my way back to the airport because I did actually have to go to Chicago, um, stopped for a lobster roll. I had a lot of lobster rolls this past weekend, and it was lovely. It's one of my favorite um New England treats. Um, and actually met up with my my cousin in the airport who was doing the exact same thing that I was doing, picking up her bib for Boston so that she could go run in Chicago. And we flew on the same flight um, back to Chicago. Uh, strangely, a, uh, I've done a lot of my flying recent or mostly on uh, American Airlines since it's the um, kind of the hometown air, uh, airline here. And I have all my miles and points with them, but the Southwest flight worked out better. And I'm glad that was on Friday and not yeah. later in the weekend because they had a little bit of a meltdown later in the weekend. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but it was it was perfect on Friday. Everything ran smoothly and on time. Um, got to Chicago, got checked into my hotel, met up with my brothers. We went to dinner at, um, my cousin opened a new restaurant up in the uh, Evanston area. So we, we checked that out on Friday night. And um, actually got some decent rest Friday night, woke up Saturday morning, ran that 5K um, that I was talking about. And I went straight to the expo because I wanted to pick up my, my bib for Chicago before everyone got there because I didn't want to wait in more lines if I could help it. Um, there was about a 15 minute wait when I got there. It, it had just opened, so it wasn't too, too bad. Um, picked up my stuff and then had actually a really nice day in Chicago. We had wonderful weather. It was, it was beautiful, sunny, 70 something degrees. Um, 
had a chance to to meet up with um, one of my best friends from going all the way back to grade school uh, in the evening, and my a uh, uh, couple of my oh my. Uh, Brothers and I went to lunch with my aunt, and we saw my other aunt and uncle who were both running the Chicago Marathon. Um, my uncle Tom ran the race on Sunday on his 70th birthday, so it was very impressive. Wow. And after having had a knee replacement a couple years ago, so even more impressive. Um, and yeah, got up on um, Sunday morning, ran the Chicago Marathon. It was a hot day in Chicago. It was almost 80 degrees by the finish, um, but... Fortunately, it pretty much stayed overcast and it was fairly windy, so I was able to manage the heat a little bit better than I expected um, and actually had a, a decent time. I was, uh, uh, after I ran in London, uh, I ran a 4.22, um, had some discussions with my coach about the times that I should be targeting. We weren't really sure when we realized it was going to be hot. We decided it was not going to be a smart idea to really push too hard and then have to run the next day. Um, so we were kind of looking at 4.15 as a, a comfortable finish time, but still, you know, getting out there and working a little hard, not just loafing through the whole thing. And I ended up running a 406 in Chicago. So it was, it was good. Wow. Yeah. I was really happy with that. Mm-hmm. I felt, I felt really good in Chicago. Um, I crossed the finish line. I went, oh, I probably should have pushed a little bit harder actually. Um, and it, I could tell I was, I was walking through the finish line area and you have to walk through Grant Park. And then I had to go, they have to go down a couple stairs and out of the park and back over to the hotel. And, uh, Watching everyone try to negotiate the stairs after a marathon is always a little bit of a spectator sport collapse? in and of itself. No, no, no. Most people have a lot of trouble because your quads just really don't want to, uh, to do that motion anymore. So a lot of people end up going down the stairs backwards or they're doing this, like they call it the zombie walk down the stairs. <laughs> I just kind of like skipped down all of them. I was like, see you guys. Got to go back on my stuff. Show off. <laughs> I yeah. felt like a little bit of a show off. I really did. Um, and yeah, I went back to the hotel, packed up my stuff basically got straight on a train and went to O'Hare and flew over to Boston. Um, had some spaghetti in the airport in O'Hare at the Macaroni Grill, got to Boston and found a really nice restaurant right across the street from my hotel in Cambridge that had, um, I was looking for protein and they had a half chicken as their special. I was like, yes, that's perfect. Half chicken and a a session IPA was my pre Boston marathon dinner. And, um, crashed at the hotel. (laughs) My poor cousin, um, it was her dad who was turning 70 and uh, running the marathon in Chicago on Sunday. So she took a later flight because she wanted to be there to congratulate him at the finish and congratulate her mom, who was also running. Um, and she was flying on Southwest and her flight ended up getting delayed um, several hours. Um, so she didn't get to the hotel until about one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. Oh, I forget. No. Yeah. Uh, she, you know, she's just got the, this very uh, great upbeat, optimistic personality. She's like, oh, I got five hours of sleep. I was fine. <laughs> she was good to go. Um, and Sunday morning or Monday mornings, this is Monday marathon, Monday in Boston. Always this was Columbus day as opposed to the usual Patriot day marathon in April. So definitely a, an unusual event. Um, the 125th running of the Boston marathon actually mm. been going on for quite a long time. Um, got up early. I had friend, I had a uh, breakfast plans with a, a running friend of mine. His name is Ron. Um, I'll talk about him in just a second too, because this comes back to podcasting and, um, a couple of our other mutual friends over at his hotel in the city. And I actually had time before cause they, they did an interesting thing in Boston where they allowed all of, um, they allowed a rolling start. So instead of setting up everyone in corrals and having each corral go in, in turn, um, they gave you a time to get on the bus. You have to be bussed out to Hopkinton. 
And once you get off the bus, you're basically free to start whenever you'd like. Um, but you can't get on the bus before your bus time. So they try to still keep everyone in kind of some sort of order according to your predicted run times, finish times. Um, so I had time. They were they're much faster than me. I was like, oh, I'm going to go back to my hotel and see if, if my cousin's okay. <laughs> so I got over there. We She was up and dressed and ready to go. And we went back into the city, got on our buses. And and um, again, another really nice day. Um, it was I actually felt more... Uh, of the effects of the heat in Boston than I did in Chicago, even though it was maybe only 70 degrees, but it was sunny the whole time and there was less wind. So I think I actually got a little bit of a, a suntan running uh, on on Monday. Um, but I had, it's kind of the same goal, go out in about a two hour half marathon and then just, you know, stay comfortable through the finish. And I finished in 411. And that was, wow. that was yeah, I was really happy with that. Two actually. amazing races. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I feel someone was asking how my legs are doing today uh i feel fine to be honest i have i've got a run on my my calendar for this evening because um i talked with my coach about it and he said yeah you might as well go out and do a, a you know a couple mile shakeout so we'll, we'll do that well right i think back into the training neil landwarm in the uh live audience uh, kind of speaks for all of us all joking aside magnificent achievement steph you're awesome thank you Neil. Absolutely. i appreciate that and do you have a, a which marathon are you going to be doing this weekend I'm not. What? Hopefully back to flying this weekend. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Marathon amounts of flying for the nice weather that we're having here because it's still gorgeous. It's like, it was like 85 degrees today and sunny. It was beautiful. Um, it was supposed to be a nice weekend, I think. Um, going back to podcasting for a second, I mentioned my friend Ron. Um, after the race on Tuesday, met back up with him and he has a podcast that is about running. His thing is he likes to chat with people on long runs and he's from the New York City area and everyone in Central Park pretty much knows who Ron is as a runner. Um, but he often meets up with people and he was, you know, just likes to chat with people on his runs. And he thought, but what, what a great idea for a podcast. We'll just do run chats. Um, so he, he does just kind of an interview show with um, interesting people in the running community. And I was honored to be his guest for his next episode. We recorded that on Tuesday morning and it should come out sometime next week. So it's run chats with at Ron runs NYC and it'll be episode 55. I think. Well, we'll have to mention it again and next week, and then we'll have yeah. a link in the yes. show notes for the it's, next It's show. all about everything I just talked about, although more detail and more um, um, some of the funny uh, things that happened along the way, because there were a few funny things, for sure. Very cool. A funny thing happened on the way to the marathon. To the marathon, yes. Somebody's um, suggesting in the, in the live audience that we do an APG 500 marathon. It'll be a rather <laughs> short show, then I guess, yeah. Very yeah. short. Yeah. <laughs> or no, you say Nick. On the contrary, it will probably take two days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well certainly will for me. Yeah. It'll, yeah, a week maybe for me. I could I could walk it in a couple of days. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Let's don't do that. No. No. Let's do one where we're sitting down. Okay. Is that it? Anything else stuff? Come on. That's um... kind of boring. It was kind of boring. Yeah. Back to work yesterday and today. And I'll tell you what, I, we were talking about fatigue with um, just normal work. Mm -hmm. I feel much more fatigued today having worked a full schedule than I did in eight days of marathon running and traveling all <laughs> over the place. Hmm. <laughs> kind of lifting up those big shots. Yes. Really heavy. No, has nothing to do with it. It's just, <laughs> it, it's just you know, so I think it's the um, mostly the mental taxation to mental effort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, very There's not good. a lot of. I'm not thinking a lot during running. Yeah, I am, but none of it's very important. 
Yeah. Mostly right foot, left foot, right foot. It's important foot. thinking when you're poking sharp needles into people's backs. Yes. Much more. If you ever go right foot, left foot, left foot, left foot, right foot. Mm. Was that some kind of a shuffle? Well, that can happen, <laughs> but then it gets a little messy. <laughs> Could be a dance, I suppose. Yeah. Well, speaking of dances, I know it has nothing to do with this, but we're going to do the coffee fund right now. And uh, here's Jeff Smith to Johnny, sing for us. Go sing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the coffee fund. It's your way to support the show financially. And a couple of different ways to do that. We have the OG, the original Coffee Fund classic method, which is via PayPal. And we can do individual one-off contributions using that uh, method. Or you can do a recurring kind of a donation thing. Several of you do that. And... uh, This week, we didn't have any uh, recurring or one-off donations via that method, but we do also have something called Patreon. You can become a patron of the show, and uh, that's where you pledge a certain amount per episode. And we have a new producer. We have a patron who signed up as Sierra Mike Kilo, but we're going to call him Sean. And I'm basing that on your email address, Sean. Uh, He's trying to be a wise guy there, I think. But we do appreciate the fact that you've signed up to become a patron of the APG. So thank you, Sean. If you're interested in learning about Patreon and uh, the Coffee Fund Classic Method, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will, too. Now, this is normally when we go to the feedback segment. But since we're doing a two-parter, I'm assuming that Liz is trying to tell me that uh, she's trying to direct me that we should go right on into this week's installment of The Plain Tale. Yep, that's what she's telling me. And uh, so let's do that right now. This Wait a minute. Wait. Just wait a second. Let me get okay. Um, control room is uh, okay, saying, yep, wait okay. a second. All right, because I have to start my start, stopwatch. Stop oh, okay. Okay. Okay, uh, I'm ready. Let me know when you're... Okay, you're ready. All right, ready. here we go. This week's Plain Tale is the second part of the Mike Wildman story. Take it away, old pilot. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. The Mike Wildman Story, Part 2. This is the second part of my interview with Mike Wildman, an amputee pilot who's had a fascinating career in aviation. The first part covered Mike's life in the Royal Air Force flying, amongst other aircraft, the C-130 Hercules. In this part, we hear about his life-changing decision to have part of his left leg removed and his fight not only to get back into the cockpit of an aircraft but to lead the world's first disabled formation display team. We join Mike as he tells us about his decision to leave the Royal Air Force. Now, how did you find the change into civil life? I loved it. I mean, uh, Virgin was, it still is, a halcyon kind of lifestyle. We, were, we, we weren't flying that hard. I remember doing 
two or three trips a month when, when I first joined uh, the airline, going to the sort of destinations you could only imagine, Tokyo, Cape Town, Delhi, flying with people like yourself, so flying with like-minded friends, yeah, 16 cabin crew, five-star hotels, you know, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, to be honest, that was absolutely marvellous. Got my command, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, I mean, I, 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 I didn't get to fly anything else, I, I flew 340s effectively my entire career, I got in there at the start and uh, sort of, uh, it finished at the end, but it was a wonderful aeroplane and yeah, we had a, we had a really nice lifestyle. Uh, unfortunately, I've been in the company only about six years or so when I had a really bad motorcycle accident. Oh, tell me what happened. Well, to try and keep in with all my Belgian mates, once I'd come home, we, about six of us, went on a motorbike holiday every year uh, with my mates from the Belgian Air Force. And this particular year, I decided to buy a new motorcycle because I didn't have one. Uh, went down to France the next day, down to Bastogne. We stayed overnight. Uh, and then launched off the next day. The guys were all on really fast motorbikes that they'd had for years. What did you have? I had a BMW 1200GS. So it well, was like not exactly slow. Not exactly slow, <laughs> but I wasn't used to it. What I should have said is I'll go at the front or, um, or I'll meet you at the hotel. What I didn't was uh, I was at the back, the slowest. I was racing to catch up with them, overcooked it into a bend, hit a dry stone wall and went down a ravine in France. A dry through. stone wall? You yeah, went so through it? Well, no, the bike flipped over the top. The oh. bike, well, he flipped me over the top. I went, uh, the bike came back into the road and I went down the ravine. Oh, my God. And uh, took pretty much all the, the, the kinetic energy through my left ankle. It was really, really badly smashed up, as you can imagine. Uh, doctors initially down in Luxembourg, because we weren't even sure which well, country we were. How did they find out about it for a start? Because well, you're like came, at the back. Yeah, they came back to find me, found debris in the road. And then a bit like in an initial uh, officer training IOT exercise, they had to go down and find me and bring me back up because the ambulance wouldn't. Uh, the ambulance had eventually arrived, but wouldn't go down and get me. And so these uh, these Belgian Air Force pilots got some sort of hoarding from the side of the road and um, were able to to pull me back up to the road. What so sort of state something. were you in? I was well. Initially, my leg was was through 180 degrees. Oh my god! Uh, so anyway, let's not go there. So I had. I think I had six weeks in hospital in Luxembourg and then back to the UK um, where they, they managed to sort of put it all back together but it was um, obviously not as good as it could be and so kind of life continued for a number of years but with it gradually deteriorating. I think I had 14 operations which most of them failed over that period. Virgin Atlantic were brilliant, they uh, allowed me time off and they allowed me, I don't know if I ever flew with you but I had these special shoes that I could fly um, both uh, so I could feel the controls properly uh, and special uh, they, they gave me um, like those buggies for going through the uh, airport and Virgin were, were very good to me and so I lived with it and the, the further operations are a little bit down the line but so I lived with it for a number of years until eventually um, we got to the stage where I couldn't walk properly I was in constant pain I was taking opiate based painkillers which meant I couldn't fly anymore and I got to the stage where I couldn't walk couldn't fly couldn't work um, fortunately Virgin was still paying me which was fantastic and so I had to make a very big decision and that was uh, to have an elective blown knee amputation that, that you just say that so calmly but that <laughs> must have been an absolute you knew it was going to be a life-changing decision Yes, I did. I'd done a lot of uh, research and I did know that a couple of guys flying around the world had, had done it and were able to come back for flying because, to be honest, 
that's why I'd left it so long because I didn't want to stop flying. Mm. But eventually I got to the stage where I didn't have one option. So, so uh, yeah, I took a load of brave pills and, uh, and off we went to have it cut off. What did your surgeon recommend? Well, by this stage, I'd had some, some operations where um, I'd had medical negligence by another surgeon uh-huh. and he'd left it in a really bad way. So by the time I'd got to the original surgeon who'd done the work, he'd said, Mike, there's pretty much nothing we can do. You've got about 30% chance of it being successful, but I can't even say that, you know, and if it did, they'd have to put one of those cages on it where you moved it by a millimetre a day, and I was going to be bedridden for two years with less than 50% chance of it being successful. Very difficult decision. And so I, I took the decision to have it done. How did you go about making that decision? Um, really, I did a lot of research online about what functionality would be like as an amputee. Uh, this is another f- funny story. I was going back to Virgin. I was in a B&B and there was a little old lady in the corner. And you got that decision, am I going to make conversation or am I not? And I was going back to Virgin after one of my many operations. She said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going back to Virgin, blah, blah, blah. And I said, but, you know, my leg is in a mess and I'm not sure what to do about uh, uh, an amputation. And she said, oh, uh, my grandson is bum de bum uh, And this guy had just returned to the Royal Marines, uh, having lost his leg, and was the first Royal Marine to go back and complete full Royal Marine training as an amputee. Oh, wow. I went down to visit him at Limpston, and that was one of the reasons I decided to make a go, because I thought, if he can do that, I can certainly carry on with my life. Wow, what an inspiration. Yeah, so that's just one of those, those, those stories. And that's completely, yeah. that was completely, completely by out of the blue. And what's the chance of me and her being in the same room at the same time, and even talking to each other? Yeah. Yeah, remarkable. Absolutely. Anyway, so yeah, so I got inspiration from him. Uh, I got encouragement from my family. Uh, and uh, I had to have two psychiatric tests because obviously the doctors wanted to make sure you were completely... Um, oh, wow. Uh, uh, well, that would mind. be a worry for most of us. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Giving an airline pilot a psychiatric test. Exactly right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you're, you're absolutely sane now, we're sure yes. of that. Is uh, that well, right? I think to, to, to an extent anyway, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, the one thing I didn't mention is uh, um, there's a fabulous uh, charity called Aerobility, which is on my jacket here somewhere, um, which its remit is to provide flying opportunities to disabled people, either as pilots or as passengers or anything else. I went to see them even before I'd had the amputation, so I still had two legs at that stage. Uh, Mike Miller-Smith, who's in charge of the charity, was very, very uh, um, enthusiastic. Um, said they'd get me flying as soon as they could but they also told me about a project that was coming up where they needed uh, an amputee pilot and so it meant that I could go into the operation and go into the, the weeks that followed in hospital with something to look forward to which is uh, would be another part of the story. And that must have been quite important to you because you knew you weren't necessarily going to leave flying behind. Exactly, because there was no guarantee that I'd ever fly an airliner again and so you know, it was a, a, a huge incentive for me. Yeah. And Aerability, uh, they, they play a part later on, I'm sure we'll exactly. come on to it. Yeah. But, uh, so you, you've woken up from the operation, and uh, <laughs> what's it like when you look down and you've only got one foot? Um, it's, it is surreal, it's absolutely surreal. Um, and of course you can still feel it. I mean, phantom limb pain is something we'll talk about later on, but even now I can still feel my toes. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember when you fly in formation, we talk about you know, easing out, relax, wiggle your toes, and I still do that when I'm flying. 
um, even to the toe that comes out. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange thing. Yeah. Your recovery, how long did that take? Oh, it was very quick. Um, I was in hospital not long, I think 10 days. Uh, came home and, and the defining thing then was to, to, to wait for the, the, the residual limb, the stump. That obviously, it's got a big wound on the bottom. So you've got to wait for that to heal. So that took about six weeks. In that time, they measure you up for leg and various bits and pieces. So you, you're, you're waiting for it to heal and wait for the leg, which is a, and in a wheelchair, which is a really frustrating time. But that was only, I think the, the operation was January the 6th. I was in the simulator by the start of March, uh, airability. And I think I flew the PA-28 a week later. So within something like eight to 10 weeks of my amputation, I was flying again. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. You've already mentioned that you were there as a project manager with mm -hmm. Airability, uh, with the aim of doing exactly what? Well, the Douglas Bader Foundation, which was the, was the charity um, set up by Sir Douglas Bader's family uh, after he died. And I'm sure some of your audience will know Douglas Bader was a, a, um, a Second World War fighter pilot. He lost his legs in a flying accident uh, in about 1933 double amputee but at the outbreak of second world war he was desperate to get back into the royal air force and through persistence and sheer bloody willpower got back to fly uh, for the RAF flew spitfires led both a squadron and a wing and became a bit of a national treasure fighter ace was shot down he was a POW ended up in Colditz so a remarkable remarkable figure and a, and a real inspiration to disabled people throughout his life yeah, so Sir Douglas Bader's family decided they want to, to um, extend his legacy. They had the idea of starting the world's first all-disabled air display team. Never been done before. There's a team called We Fly, who are fantastic guys down in Italy, and they have a couple of guys who are paraplegics, but they fly in a three-ship with another able-bodied person. So a fully disabled air display team had never been done before. So a bit like Cinderella, through our ability... We had a tryout for all the disabled uh, pilots in uh, in the UK. We all decided wow, how many are there? There's not that many. I think there were a few missing uh, I've met since then, but I think there were about 20 to 25. There's not that many. It's okay. quite a small, small sort of uh, gene pool. We all try, uh, tried out through uh, to Western Flying Club. Uh, it's a great flying club, um, manned by BA captains who have all got... Um, Heaps of money. Well, no, but fast <laughs> jet backgrounds. Most of them are Air Force. Oh, okay. A lot of them were BBMF. The BBMF is the Royal Air Force's Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, flying uh, Lancaster, some Spitfires, Hurricanes, uh, Dakota, and that sort of thing. And so they were, and they gave up their time to uh, come and assess us and then train us. And Excellent. That was absolutely fabulous. So they came down, uh, we all tried out, we did close formation in the PA-28s, and eventually they chose three of us to, uh, to fly for the team. And I was fortunate enough uh, to be chosen to lead it. So brilliant that was fantastic brilliant so who were the other guys on your wing okay on my right wing was a guy called um, Alan Robinson and he uh, is another amputee who had a motorcycle crash and Alan is an engineer in the Royal Air Force oh, right. uh, he's a sergeant on the a flight sergeant on AWAC squadron at Waddington uh, got a flying scholarship through uh, flying scholarships for the disabled and did his PPL. Is that another organisation? That's another organisation. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, there's a few um, organisations around there and they all kind of mesh and, and, and fit in. So he got his PPL through them. Uh, he then went off and did 
some pretty wacky uh, microlite flying. He flew up to the Arctic Circle in a, in a microlite. What? Um, yeah, great films of them landing on skis in snow up in Sweden. Uh, really remarkable. So what? he did that. Um, <laughs> and then, and then uh, with very little flying, he was able. To, he won us uh, another scholarship through Prince Harry's Endeavour Trust, um, and he was chosen to replicate World War II fighter pilot training. So they gave him, I think, 15 or 20 hours on a chipmunk to do um, tailwind training. I think he did 20 hours on a Harvard for complex aircraft and then 20 hours on the Spitfire, um, which he soloed at the Boltby Academy down at uh, Goodwood. And he was the first uh, amputee pilot since Sir Douglas Bader to solo the Spitfire. Wow. With about 150 hours. Um, just absolutely remarkable. So he was chosen uh, and he was number two. And the guy on the other wing uh, was a guy called Barry Hobkirk. And Barry had uh, effectively broken his back in a helicopter accident. He was a Chinook pilot. And again, a remarkable guy because uh, he eventually became uh, uh, paraplegic and continued to fly in the Royal Air Force. But he was on the training squadron and he did various jobs for about seven or eight years afterwards as a paraplegic. Wow, he was still flying the Chinook? Still, still flying the Chinook. Good Lord. Now, not many people know that story. So he's a remarkable guy. Um, and he was the um, number three. And so we were chosen. Over two years, we trained with Western Flying Club and uh, eventually got our display authorizations. And we did a display season where I think we displayed at uh, six or eight airfields. Uh, and we were very proud. I can remember the, the first show was a bit of a day like this. And it was at Duxford, first display of the season. It was May. And... 25,000 people on the ground. We're holding to the north of the airfield. Um, I think the blades were on, uh, having done, uh, and, and then we rolled in, and it was a perfect day, and the display all went well. And then we landed, we got standing innovation, and I've got to say, it's the, one of the best days of my life. It was uh, a remarkable, remarkable achievement. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, and you certainly did uh, take advantage of uh, your new life, as it were. Well, there's no doubt. You know, I was just a, a, a very average pilot. There's no way that had I not lost my leg, I'd be ending up flying air displays. I mean, I have no, no doubts about that whatsoever. So, yeah, as one door closes, another one opens. Yeah. I, I'm also, I, I do motivational speaking for, for Blessma, which is the limbless veterans charity. Uh, and I meet all sorts of people that I would never have met if I if I'd remained you know, a bipod. Oh, that's amazing. Now, those displays sort of wound down uh, while the, around 2019? Yeah, yeah, 2019. Of course, COVID came in um, spring of 2020 yeah. um, and everything stopped. So we had kind of uh, a year on the ground kicking our heels. Um, I had quite a lot of time off because uh, we haven't talked about that side of things. When I knew that my leg was in a pretty bad way, the writing was on the walls regarding whether I'd be able to continue flying or not. And so um, I went and got myself qualifications uh, initially as a flying instructor and then teaching something called MPL, which is the multi, uh, multi-pilot course. For, you did this off your own bat? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was a company called, uh, it was called CTC in those days. That's now called L3 Harris. But uh, yeah, I went and paid for all my qualifications. Um, built up my experience, became a type rating instructor on the uh, A320. Right. And then eventually a typewriting examiner. And I've been doing that for about 10 years now. Um, cool. So that became a kind of a second career, uh, which I could, I could revert back to after my, my amputation. Um, but of course, that all stopped as well. So I had, a, I had a year on the ground, basically, where there was not a lot to do. 
We'll continue with Mike's story next week. The reason I wanted to talk to Mike wasn't just to hear the story of his amazing life, but because, as the leader of the world's first and only fully aerobatic amputee formation team, he needs your help. Any display team needs financial assistance, and Team Phoenix is no different, until you realise that they have had to overcome many hurdles that no other team faces. They're worthy of your help. Should you be in a position to assist Mike, then... So Mike, what's the best way people can get in touch with you if they want to help you out in this amazing journey of yours? Okay, well, easy way is to call me on the telephone, um, plus 44 for the UK, um, 7973-762-301, or you can email me, mike at teamphoenixair.com. Uh, and also we have uh, a website, Team Phoenix Air. Uh, have a look at that, teamphoenixair.com, and have a look at that online and all the contact details are there. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Thanks. Okay. So inspirational that man is. Uh, absolutely, uh, okay. Jeff. Um, that, that's, I mean, his story is just remarkable from start to finish, and also the stories of those around him. Uh, you know, they, they really do uh, inspire, and anyone who feels they have a disability uh, needs to listen to this, to perhaps in those dark days when they feel that they can't achieve anything more in their life, they need to listen to this and realise that that's far from the case. If, if you have drive, enthusiasm, support from those around you who love you and also from the many organizations that are out there. And then almost anything is achievable. And Mike is, you know, living proof of that. Yeah, absolutely. My uh, my running coach, we'll go back to running for just a second, is very fond of quoting um, what the mind believes the body achieves. And um, yeah, sometimes you need a little help and support, but you have to have to believe it to get there. Absolutely. Mr. I.H. Boxes uh, has a a good point here. He says, another example of if there's a will, there's a way for all you young aviators out there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Puts in perspective, doesn't uh, it? When, you know, we talk about being laid off, you know, this pandemic has caused all kinds of havoc for people's careers. But come on. I mean, (laughs) it could be a lot worse. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very easy to say, woe is me. But um it's all about attitude. We're going to wrap this up next week with the final part of the show. It's not going to be a very long one, um, but, uh, you know, I'm still looking forward to it. And what's more, I'm going to meet Mike uh, next week. We're going to have a curry together, and uh, I look forward to chatting to him. He said, Let, let's meet and have a chat without the microphones. <laughs> so <laughs> very sensible. To that. You seem yes. to be doing those curries uh, quite often quite recently. Generally. Well, do you blame me with the Majiban uh, no. fantastic Indian restaurant in my village? <laughs> I cannot blame you. That's excellent Mike, Mike Indian cuisine. Yes. Uh, and Micah, main man Micah, if there's a will, there's often a family argument. <laughs> <laughs> Good Very point. true, Micah. Very true. Oh, man. Yeah, I look forward to the next installment, the last one, sadly. But uh, again, as uh, Nick said, if you have the financial resources to support this uh, cause, please check out the show notes and uh, contribute. All right. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, 
Let's do Kelly. For yeah, sure. I was going to say the same thing, Liz. We're we're on the same the same scary, wavelength. It? Yeah, scary. it is scary. <laughs> that means your mind is messed up. Okay, um, this is from Kelly, and we've been talking about this meetup in Fargo, North Dakota, for quite some time. And guess what? It happened. And he's told Ooh. me to read this first before we play the video. Yes, he has a video. Uh, greeting APG crew and community. The Fargo meetup was great fun. Good camaraderie. Uh, com- comradeship. Camaraderie? Uh, no. How do you pronounce that? Comradeship. Good. Uh, a lot of people like getting together and being good comrades. Fellowship. <laughs> Fellowship. And great food. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, never use that word again because I can't pronounce it. Uh, I was really hoping for this to be a fly-in, but unfortunately, Mother Nature had other plans. Grand Forks had hard IMC all day, and at my airport, we had overcast at 800 feet with rain showers. I wish I had my camera ready because there was probably the most spectacular roll cloud to the west of Fargo I think I've ever seen. We had a great time, and I'm hoping to be able to do it again soon. Congrats on 500 episodes. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Such a great milestone. Only the best reach that level, so keep it up. Thank you. Included is the video he took at the restaurant. Okay, and he said he's apologizing for the bad background noise. He said, but hey, you know, I tried to clean it up, but it is a restaurant after all. Okay, good point. So we'll keep that in mind then when we listen And if you're watching the uh, video version of our show, uh, watch Kelly and the Grand, not Grand Forks, the Fargo meetup. I'm trying to vamp here as I load this video. Here we go. Love it. Hey there, Captain Jeff and crew. This is Kelly coming to you live from the Shack on Broadway with our APG Fargo meetup. I'm joined by my two very special brand new friends. I've got Keith and James. We'll go let them introduce them and uh, tell me about how we got involved with APG. Hey, I'm uh, Keith Durbin. I'm up from uh, Grand Forks here. I go to the University of North Dakota. Uh, I got involved with APG. Uh, my first episode was the Oshblast 2019 episode. Um, and I've listened ever since, and it's been great. Congrats for 500, guys. Hello, my name is James. I'm a full-time flight instructor up at UND. I've been listening since my freshman year, which was probably right around episode 300. Uh, really helped get a lot of insight through my time in college, so really enjoyed listening. Congrats on that big 500. And I've seen some feedback before talking about my fly training. I've, I've been listening to APG since about the Farm Girl episode. And I've been listening ever since. I have not gone back and listened to the whole catalog. But uh, I'm glad at what you're doing now. Congrats, congratulations on 500 episodes. Thanks. Have a day. Back to you, Captain Jeff. All right. He threw it back to me. So, so well done there, Kelly. And thank you. Well done with that. Fargo meetup. Uh, that is awesome that you took the initiative to um, get folks together up there in North Dakota. And uh, hopefully if you do it again, uh, you'll have a, a, a bigger uh, turnout and hopefully maybe I'll get to head on up there as well and, and join you all. That would have been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well Sorry, done. We, Sorry, we I missed. You should have invited the family that was right behind your, your phone to come and join you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope one of them's okay. It sounded like one of them might have been choking on something. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, you should have gotten up and said, yeah. "Okay, hey, everybody in the restaurant, attention, please. Just shut uh, up for a minute. I'm recording something very important." Very important. We don't yeah, I appreciate all the uh, preliminary fi- congratulations on 500 epi- episodes. I guess they're just assuming that we'll make it for another couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. I'm, that's a quit. big assumption, but that's an assumption. Yeah. I, I'm hoping none of us drop dead before because <laughs> that, that be might really tragic. put a mucker on it. Yeah. It would. Yeah. It'd really be sad, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I don't blame you for not going back and listening to all the episodes, but it sounds like none of them listened to the. Yeah. I've seen the 200th episode. I would actually encourage that. No, one. I wouldn't look at that one. <laughs> <laughs> That was, yeah, it was quite something. That's for sure. It's my favorite. Yeah. If you want to see a grown man cry after having very large, uh, having consumed very large amounts of beer. Well, then it's it's a good episode. It's heartwarming. It's very touching. Heartwarming, (laughs) Heartwarming, maybe. Anyway. Number four. Number four. Okay. Liz is telling me we should do number four. The drone. Sorry, the drone. Four. I should say for Rick. Yeah, it's well, actually, only part of it is for Rick, the second part. There are actually two components to this from Texas Charlie. And it's another one where I'm going to have to do the share video function here. And uh, so, what's the title of this? The title of this, Liz, is okay, how many pilots pilots does does it take to screw in a light bulb? Here's the answer. Cooper, no tiene sentido gastar combustible okay, para la Tell us what they're saying. Cooper, ¿qué vas a hacer? I'm assuming this is Spanish. We're looking at a drone with a light bulb affixed to a cork. Down, since I think most of us don't really need to have that. He said it's not possible. Audio. And uh, there's a drone uh, approaching an empty socket in the ceiling with the. Uh, screwed and the base of the light bulb pointed upward and it's getting closer and closer and it's almost like air refueling right nick absolutely in the socket and now the yeah we don't twiddle around we don't do aileron rolls once we've made contact probably not a good idea and look at that and we certainly don't set light to the fuel. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not good. Yeah, the light bulb is on just to prove that they got a good contact with that, that socket. That is very ingenious. How often do you have to change a light bulb? Um, and you, it's some light fixture that's in a very inconveniently high mm-hmm. you know what? place. I, I hate house. to say it, but you can go out and buy for <laughs> about $5 a long pole with a suction cap on it. It's not as fun. fun is that? You stick the, how, yeah, what but, else are you gonna, how else are you going to make use of your drone? That you, <laughs> you fly up to your neighbor's bedroom window, of course. <laughs> oh well. Actually, yes. I want to see them change a battery on a smoke detector. That's oh, that would be <laughs> that would be quite something, wouldn't it, Steph? Very yes. good. Well, yes. Very useful. So, do, you want to do, no, do you want to do number eight just before we go? Sure. And then you can play going green too. Sure, we'll do that. Um, but before we do that, Liz, I'd like to say the punchline, of course, or the answer to the question: How many pilots does it take to screw in a light bulb? Is one. But it has to be a drone pilot. There we go. <laughs> Neil came up with the same same answer. Oh, did he? Oh, Only good. One, well, Neil's but very he'll smart. tell you he's a pilot first. Uh, yes, he will. <laughs> okay, I have to get something ready here. I'm going to do one more. This is from Tim. Tim Van Ram. You ever heard of that guy? Mm. Anyway. Nah. 
Thought you would all like to see this Jeopardy category that popped up this week. I wonder how Rick would do on this game show. And uh, would they play Ricketts? Kind regards, Tim Van Ram. Oh, look at that. The category is... We're going green. Going green. We're going green. (laughs) We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. Boom, boodle, I, I, I've gone green on occasions, but usually after. That's I've usually drunk too after. Much. <laughs> so I was gonna say after a couple of like egg rolls. Maybe and, after the two hundred episode. Uh, yeah. After uh, yeah, alcohol will alcohol. eventually. Do Huey Jagermeister, uh, Jagermeister. Uh, yeah, Jager uh, bombs. after a few <laughs> Jager bombs. All yeah, right. Huey Meisters. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up part one of our show episode 493 we have some more great feedback um including some good audio feedback as well uh up for you uh, ready to play for our next um installment which will be tomorrow if you're watching this live uh friday the 15th of october and about three o'clock eastern daylight time so if you can join us tomorrow we'd really appreciate it eight o'clock see uh, oh, that, that's only eight o'clock here. Eight o'clock, it? yeah. So hey, hmm. if you're available and you're not doing anything, Nick, uh, head on over. And same thing for you. You sure, Steph? Yeah. So you probably don't be working. Think I'll be home that quickly. Yeah. Yes. So y'all have fun without. Oh, me. I, I might we'll be able to make it. Okay. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, then we'll see you again tomorrow, Nick. Cool. Just as you stay there. Don't move. Don't 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 go anywhere. <laughs> don't go to bed because right now, <laughs> nope. just like a few seconds from now, we're going to be hearing the dulcet tones. The dulcet tones of Miami Rick. Oh, you mean beautiful Dr. Steph's going to turn into Miami Rick. Steph, why don't you give me the best impression that you have of Miami Rick? Well, um, just went to the gym and uh, I love Boeing's. Oh, wow. That is really good. It sounds just like Miami Rick. Oh, wait a minute. It really is. (laughs) All right. It's Miami Rick, our intrepid... Freight dog. I don't have the script up, so I can't tell you all the other things, but uh, he's just one great guy, that's for sure. And he's joining us for part two on episode 493. Hello, Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back once again from the great state of Texas. So, uh, got a couple of really interesting uh, things to talk about here. And I'm um, happy to see uh, Nixter here again. It's been a while since seeing you. Uh, uh, yeah, you've been hiding. So I know, I know. Uh, working way too hard. Yeah, well, you? you know, well, it's, this is not really work. Thankfully, we love what we do. And so uh, great to see you, man. Good job. Excellent. All right. Well, um, why don't we go ahead and just keep going on with the groove here and the news. And uh, we left a couple of items in here for you, sir. And uh, let's start with uh, 1C. Uh, Qantas breaks Australia's longest commercial flight record. Uh, they break the record with a 17 and a half hour repatriation flight between Buenos Aires and Darwin. Uh, they added another historic flight to its record books after one of its planes traveled a massive 15,000 kilometers, the longest passenger flight in its 100 year history. The QF 14 repatriation repatriation flight from Buenos Aires to Darwin made the 15,020 kilometer trip in 17 hours and 25 minutes. It beat out Qantas's previous longest flight record by more than 500 kilometers. 
The trip between London and Perth is 14,900, no, 498 kilometers. So beat it by, as I said, a little bit over 500 kilometers. Uh, they used a Boeing 787-9. Of course. Uh, carrying 107 passengers out of South America to quarantine for two weeks in the Northern Territory. And uh, the flight was the return leg of a Qantas charter flight that took Argentina's rugby union team home after their games in Brisbane for the rugby championship. And uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs in Australia, and no, see, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade worked with Qantas to get Australians stuck in South America home. The 107 passengers were in addition to the four pilots who rotated throughout the flight and 17 cabin crew, engineering, and ground staff. The repatriation flight took off at 12.44 local time in Buenos Aires, tracking south of Argentina, skirting the edge of Antarctica before crossing the Australian coast at 5.28 p.m. and landing in Darwin at 6.39 p.m. local time last night. Now, this was, I don't know, a few days back. I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, Liz, if you'll show that overlay and show that track of this historic flight from... Argentina. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, no wonder it took them so long. They went in a huge, great big yeah, U via the Antarctic. If they'd just gone in a straight line, I it know. would have been like twice as quick. Yeah. I know. That's what I was thinking. It's, What's uh, all that about? I don't, I don't know. know. If they'd just gone straight across the ocean there, <laughs> yeah. instead of dipping down to do some sightseeing. Somebody yeah, needs to talk sure. to their dispatch department here. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what was wrong with there them. How weird is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're a flat earther, you're probably honestly having that uh, question in your mind. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Liz. Um, I guess I didn't properly format that thing to cover up the entire screen. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, so what do you think? Uh, uh, quite quite a flight, I guess. It's, oh, man, I tell you, just uh, haven't come back to the 7-6 almost two years ago now. And uh, the longest flight i regularly do now is from the west coast out to hawaii you know, just just under five hours i'm uh, looking back on the um, you know the days of my my, my triple seven days and 747 days i i don't know just I, it's not <laughs> it just doesn't have the same appeal it used to anymore it's being in an airplane that long you know Every time I, 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 I log on to the company, uh, uh, the portal to you know pick up my flight plan and, and the paperwork and all that, I look at all the other flights that are going on. And uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, I, uh, there was a flight leaving from, um, uh, from Cincinnati going all the way to, um, to Seoul Lynch on South Korea. And it was something like 15 and a half, 15 hours and 45 minutes. And wow. I'm going, man. That just hurts thinking about it. And I think I, I, I used to do that regularly. Um, mm-hmm. So um, it's just... It's and the and I I I'm I'm sure Nick can uh, attest to this. It's just when you're, you know, flying and you know in an airplane for that long a period of time, you basically cease to exist to the world. You know, you just you you, you take off and something's going on. By the time you land, you know, things are completely different uh, mm. in more than one aspect. And um, just being up there for that long, it's uh, I don't know. Nick, ah. you're you're uh, you were doing long, long um, duration oh. kind of long haul flights. Oh, uh, almost exclusively. Flying. Yeah. And what was a typical? What was the longest that you'd ever done? Uh, I think uh, very close to seventeen hours. Uh, oh my! That what was, was that? In, uh, that was from 
uh, Hong Kong back to London. Uh, mm. We were, in those days we couldn't go through Russia and China, so we went on a southern route um, through. Uh, let me think uh, through Vietnam. Uh, Bangladesh, yeah, northern through India, India yeah. hmm. and then up into Turkey. Uh, so uh, the trouble with that route, it was uh, right in the centre of the um, subtropical jet stream that was sit in your face for that whole sector from Hong Kong. And hmm. uh, at times it was so strong that you literally couldn't make it home in one go. Um, so it was much better once we were allowed to go up into uh, Chinese and Russian airspace, we could get north of that, and we did it, no problems. But uh, flight planning came up with an interesting trick. So uh, at times we would turn around and go away from London uh, and curve up over Japan and then pick up the Japanese uh, routes that we had through northern Russia and uh, those ones had been pre-agreed with the Russian authorities and come home on effectively uh, a, a Japan route. So it was just like flying a Tokyo to London with about an extra three hours added on to get to Tokyo. And it used to cause enormous consternation amongst the passengers because you get airborne from Hong Kong, they'd be looking at their sky maps and uh, they could see that we were tracking in the opposite. Yeah, where are they going? <laughs> like we've been thrust hijacked. We've been hijacked. We know what we're doing. Trust me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you have to come on the PA and uh, you know and try and pacify everyone. But it, 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 of course, it saved time because you'd, if you'd stopped, it would be you know a descent approach, mm. throw it on the ground, you know, and add a refuel. Generally speaking, you're at the risk of something breaking. You might oh, never. Yeah get off again for hours if you could uh, if you could do it that way it was great i mean the times we did it we would fly literally at a uh, green dot speed uh, min drag speed you know the longest range speed so weren't going fast and uh, we set off with barely enough fuel to get to london and all the time we were updating our uh, company as to whether we will be able to get there or not, or whether we'd have to land in Europe and top up just to make the last. Now you were you were you were, uh, you were redispatched or or uh, some some kind of redispatch scenario or. Uh, you know, I can't remember. I I was a first officer when we were doing this right. because uh, by the time I was a captain, we'd got agreements to to route uh, the would, quickest way through would they have to do China that uh, Russia? Rick? because with the four engine um and etops probably wasn't um well so a factor. Well, re, well we used to redispatch on the 74 all the time oh, okay. so, yeah so it's not it's not really oh, okay. an issue of of, of etops um so basically uh, um redispatch has to do with the amount of fuel uh that you uh, have to have in your tanks as a reserve to get you to your alternate gotcha and so, and that depends on the on the length of the flight. And so, obviously, the longer the flight, the more fuel you need to have mm. as return. So, basically, when when you, I remember we we talked about this when you when you redispatch, basically all you do is you are you are initially dispatched to an airport short of your destination, and that is your redispatch airport, right? So, at that point, um, if you have the fuel required to get you from your redispatch point to your destination, then you're you're redispatched from that point to your destination, and the required amount of fuel you need as reserve is only the fuel that you would require for that for that short second sector. So it's based on a percentage of, of the flight, then. Okay, exactly. gotcha. Instead of, instead yeah. of total leg, because imagine so you, we didn't we didn't call it that, Rick, but that's effectively what we did. Hmm. So we we cut down to absolute bare minimum, minimums. So. 
It, uh, it, and it wasn't very comfortable, but we didn't do it very often, only when the season was really bad uh, and we were getting really heavy jets against us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I tell you, I mean, uh, five hour flights, I, I I love this stuff. Yeah, yesterday it was <laughs> yesterday was uh, what was it uh, from from where where we left? Uh, where the hell did I? What was I yesterday? Uh, I was up in Rockford. No, no, I was in Stockton. Stockton here. It was two hours forty seven minutes block time. It was fantastic. Bankers hours. I can get used to this. <laughs> Our control room has a question for you two gentlemen. Um, being um, routed over the Antarctic region is that is that a factor when it comes to etops calculations oh yeah because there's really not a lot i mean there's probably nowhere in the antarctic continent that you can use as an emergency airport is there right so exactly right so etops basically deals with having access to uh, a suitable uh, alternate inside of whatever your ETOPS certification is, be it 180, 120, or 300, whatever it is, usually 180 minutes. So that means that at any point on the route, you need to be, you need to have a, a, a field at 180 minutes at, at the, you know, at, at, the, uh, at that point. Right. Okay. So, uh, and, and, and it's the same. I remember uh, flying over, uh, flying over Africa, uh, doing on, on, on set, doing seven, four runs down to uh, South Africa and such. Uh, there are places where ETOPS does apply, even at, on a 747, because ETOPS is, it's, uh, it used to be that it was uh, specifically related to the engines, but uh, in, in, in cargo airplanes as well, you have to keep in mind that the, um, the effectivity of the, or the efficacy of the firefighting equipment, particularly in the, the lower cargo base, because the main cargo deck is not, uh, does not have a fire suppression system aside from just depressurizing the airplane going down to 25,000 feet. Now, the lower holds are uh, equipped with uh, chemical agents, and those have a time frame of efficacy. And so ETOPS is kind of predicated on that as well when, when, when you start dealing with that, uh, with that, with that kind of cargo, hmm. especially the stuff that, that's called a CAO, cargo aircraft only, stuff that you can't carry on a passenger jet. Lithium-ion batteries, perhaps? That kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, zombies, you can't carry or zombies. zombies on a passenger aircraft. <laughs> I would, I would recommend against yeah. that in any situation. Yeah, well, no. apparently they they do it in Rick's airplane. They just put them in a cage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say no. They're up in the cab in the cockpit. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, I sit next to one actually. <laughs> so, um, it would, just to make sure that everybody understands, listening, uh, when we were uh, talking about why didn't they just go straight across the. Uh, the uh, Pacific Ocean um, directly. It looks like it would have been a shorter line. Well, on a on a flat projection, yeah, it does. But if you were looking at this uh, on a on a sphere, a globe, and you put your finger uh, at Buenos Aires and uh, your other finger um, over there at Darwin, Australia, you would see that if you took a string, that that shortest route would actually be that route that we see flattened out. What, a, yeah. what do they call that? A Mercator projection or well, something like that? Great, great circle route. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. So. Um, that's why we were just having some fun saying, why did they go all the way yeah. out of their way down there? But that actually is the shortest way to get there. <laughs> and if you Absolutely. really want to have some fun, you would actually fun the other way because uh, the earth rotates the other way. So oh, yeah. kind of, yeah, good okay. point. Why, why didn't they go uh, the long way around? That's what I want to know. <laughs> good, good question, Nick. Okay. Let's move on to this one. Uh, item G 
Um, let's see, an Etihad Boeing 787, another 787, this time a Dash 10 registration Alpha 6 Bravo Mike Delta performing freight flight 9878 from Beijing, China to Abu Dhabi, United Arab, Arab Emirates with three crew was on final RNP Yankee approach to Abu Dhabi's runway 31 left, descending through about 210 feet above ground, about 1.3 nautical miles before the runway threshold, hmm. when the commander spotted four red PAPIs, Precision Approach Path Indicator Lighting Systems, is uh, what PAPI stands for, or pa- in- instrument um, system, uh, three-degree glide path. So if you see four, normally on a three-degree glide path, you'll see two white and two red, um, but if you see all four red, that means that you're about what a full dot below the uh, glide path, or um, I'm not sure it how. Looks, it, it depends on depends on how close you are to the runway, but right. yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never seen four red. <laughs> I have on the ground. <laughs> oh, very good, very good. Yes, yeah. and I am only joking. Yeah, and, joking. and instructed to go. Okay, so they saw that the commander saw that he instructed to go around. Um, and, uh, Simon in, uh, this is from the aviation Herald said, uh, Simon adds editorial note, according to a three degree glide path, the aircraft should have been at 463 feet AGL at that point, not 210. So more than double that height. If you were on the glide path, the first officer initiated the go around the aircraft climbed to 4,000 feet as per their altimeter. However, 3,700 feet, according to Q&H setting, as indicated at the ATC desk. So, in other words, they said they were at 4,000 feet, and the uh, air traffic controller was looking at it and going, no, we're showing you at 3,700 feet. And that was when they realized that uh, they had used the wrong Q&H, um, the altimeter setting, um, for this, uh, this pressure system, this area. And so they went back and got vectored for an ILS approach to runway 31 left and landed safely. Uh, the air accident investigation sector determined that the cause of the aircraft flying below the vertical profile during approach was the incorrect local pressure, the QNH altimeter setting. Um, let's see. So they had some contributing factors to the incident here in their report. Uh, the crew errors involved the Operating flight crew admitted to pre- preset QNH value after receiving audit- automatic terminal information service, ATIS information, even though the commander had confirmed to ATC that their flight had received ATIS information, India, which contained the QNH of 999 hectopax- hector- hectopascals. Say that right? I think I did. Hectopascals. Okay. Thank you. Uh, prior to and at transition level, the flight crew were fixated on the high energy management for the descent, so they must have gotten behind. Mm. Um, yeah. And really then, easy to do on the 787, yeah. such that selecting the barometric setting from the standard pressure of 1013 to the local QNH value was carried out incorrectly, or maybe not at all, I'm guessing. Uh, the VSD, what does that stand for? Vic, ver, vertical situation a, display? Yeah, vertical situation display. Basically, it uh, it, it gives you a kind of like um, a vertical slice of what your descent path looks like. Uh, the aircraft descent path uh, based on its uh, flight path angle compared to what the required descent is based on the procedure uh, that you're flying. So the idea is to have the aircraft um, velocity vector match the descent of the procedure and that's how you know that you're on you're on point Hmm. well apparently they were not used or considered during the 
approach by the flight crew. Hmm. Um, at higher altitudes, the forward visibility was less than reported due to the presence of haze layers, of which uh, are commonly associated with temperature inversions in the Middle Eastern region. It's normal, yeah. Okay. So now the air, air traffic control is not off the hook either, um, according to the investigators. They did not provide the airport QNH information along with the initial descent clearance from a flight level to an altitude, which they're required to do, I believe. Yep. Uh, nor when they were issued the clearance of RNAV Yankee runway 31 left approach from the initial approach fix. And they did not provide instruction to check the QNH setting and the level of the aircraft when the activation of the minimum safe altitude warning was triggered on its radar screen. So a couple of chances there for the air traffic controllers to kind of break through this error that the crew had made. Primarily the crew's yeah. error, but air yeah. traffic control, you know, yeah. they, they should have been saying these that, things. That's true. It, Those Funyun rings were lining up. Yes. Oh, yeah. Sure. That right Funyun effect. Mm. I'm um, trying to see here if uh, if Abu. I'm pretty sure it does. Abu Dhabi has every bell and whistle. Um, every you know airports out in there in the Middle East they usually do. And I'm trying to see. Of course, they have uh, they have digital ATIS, mm-hmm. and so um, digital ATIS is really nice because what you can do is uh, you can set it to um, to update automatically. So every time a new ATIS report comes out, and I'm, I'm I'm sure you have that on the seven one seven, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, so every time a new report comes out, it'll just you know. At fifty three or fifty five or whenever the the thing is that you know, they do it over there in the, in, the, in the Middle East, I think it's on the hour. It'll it'll just it'll ding, let you know that there's a new uh, ATIS, and you just go through that. And the cool thing about the the seven eight and the triple and the, the seven four, and I'm sure the seven one seven as well as that, and Airbuses as well as that, you could pre-select your Q and H setting. Um, while still flying on standard, while still flying on 2992. And so as you um, descended through that transition level, you would, you know, hit the uh, the button there for, to go from standard to QNH. And then the uh, the now the reference would be your updated QNH based on your, your ATIS. Now, uh, based on the, and we were talking about this before, before we started here, um, the... The database, the FMC database, navigational database um, for every airport on the particularly newer airplanes has the transition level and transition altitude as part. It's codified there. So it it knows what the transition level or altitude is so that if in this case, if you're descending through transition and you forget to switch from QNE to QNH, the screen right down there on your primary flight display the numbers will uh, blink yellow, letting you know, hey, uh, we're through transition and you're still on a Q&E reference. So it's time to perhaps change. And not only that, but the on, on all bones that have flown from you know the 7.5 to the 777, the approach checklist, the main part of the approach checklist is to check that transition from Q&E to Q&H um, for that particular reason. Yeah, on our descent so, check and approach check lists, um, each of them have a reference to the altimeter setting. Just to oh, so you got to do it twice. Yep. Oh wow. Okay. Um, interestingly, on the on the report, um, let's see. The takeoff go around toga mode was engaged with the simultaneous engagement of the autopilot when the aircraft was at a distance of approximately one point three nautical miles from the threshold. 
The uh, indicated altitude was 570 feet. That's what they were looking at on their altimeters. And the radio altitude altitude was around 210. <laughs> That's a huge discrepancy. And uh, the co-pilot, as a pilot flying, did not call for a go-around when he became aware of the vertical profile anomaly as he saw the four red pappy lights. It wasn't until the commander saw the four red lights that he called for the go-around and then the pilot flying the co-pilot went ahead and did it but not sure i i guess they they think that's a significant enough thing that happened there that uh they had to uh, mention it here in this report and i'm not sure if you're the pilot flying and you see four four red <laughs> lights i mean you shouldn't wait for the commander to yeah. tell you to go around you should do it on no, your own <laughs> I, I, i'm sure that's why they included it yeah because he was the first guy to realize that they were dangerously low and the situation was not right. So he should have just automatically gone around. He shouldn't have right. had to wait. Yeah, I agree. And it, it talks about here when they were turning right for a crosswind to a downwind leg at a level of 4,000 feet, as per the vectors provided by uh, air traffic control, the approach controller requested confirmation that the flight crew had established the QNH setting of 998, 998 now, and queried the flight crew about the pre- their present altitude, which was not a standard air traffic control request addressed to the flight crew. That was like, huh? Why are they asking about our altitude? This indicates the controller was not certain of the QNH setting in the aircraft since 3,700 feet was shown on the air ATC's display. Consequently, the flight crew realized that they had the incorrect QNH setting on their primary flight displays. The true altitude was 300 feet below the indicated altitude in the flight deck and was identical to the air traffic control display after they fixed that. So they went ahead and made sure all the altimeters were set properly. And then uh, the story is, you know, happy, happy ending, happy, ever, yeah. happily ever after, except for yeah. the paperwork and probably having to talk to some people and the, about this. And the carpet dance that yeah. uh, was afterwards. And, uh, but it, th- but this is really interesting. And, and, and again, we were talking about that before we started uh, recording here. And then, and so these, these, these RNAV approaches uh, have a electronically generated glide path. So they are, they're very, very, very accurate, and they bring you right down to the runway. And in some cases, you have you know the LDA type approaches, which have in some cases lower than category one ILS minima to them. Hmm. Um, but the way the so so this this electronic glide path is generated, so it's it's to three degrees. But the point where that glide path intercepts the uh, I guess the final approach fix is <laughs> dependent on the correct Q and H. You have to be flying at the correct altitude to pick up the glide path at the correct point to bring you down to the runway at the correct point. Because otherwise, the geometry is going to be off, as we saw here. Uh, that's not the case with an ILS because the the glide slope portion of the ILS is ground based, and basically what you're doing is you're just you're just, you're just following a radio beam down to the correct point and that's that intersects your flight path your altitude at a point in space you know regardless of what your altitude is and brings you down to the runway at the correct point and so that's that's the difference there unless they have the glide slope antenna mounted on some kind of a moving vehicle Exactly. <laughs> Which and they don't normally the, do. And if that's the case, <laughs> yeah. that should be on the notums. Um, <laughs> they should, yeah. Yeah. That and should if it's fun. not... <laughs> that, that moving vehicle could, of course, be an aircraft carrier. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah I, exactly. Rick, I was just going to ask you, uh, when you're all set up and you know the aircraft is at the right altitude and the, your um, equipment will 
intercept the glide path and start taking you down the hill. Mm-hmm. Is What's your indication? The only reason I ask is because in the Airbus, it's not very obvious. You've got a little uh, descent arrow indicating mm-hmm. that you're going to commence a descent at this point, and it goes from blue to white. It's not a very big arrow. It's not like it's, oh, you're locked on, you're all set to go. There, there is actually a, an approach light that comes on as well, but you're usually staring at the nav display at that point trying to confirm. What's it on the Boeing? So on the Boeing, you have, um, you're going to be flying this whole procedure on, on um, at le- well, the, the, obviously the lateral aspect of it and what's called LNAV or lateral navigation. The vertical part, which is what we're talking about, the important part here, is going to be uh, flown in, in VNAV. And when you are on a pre-programmed portion of a vertical profile, be it up or down, the vertical mode on the autopilot is going to be VNAV path. That tells you that you're following a vertical path. Now, um, once you are vectored from your base to final turn at your published altitude prior to going, you know, starting down the hill there, there's going to be a little green dot right at the point where the airplane is going to start descending. And that's going to say T slash D stands for top of descent. And as lo- as soon as you begin down, obviously um, the aircraft's going to pitch over and start coming down. And you're going to have uh, ahead of the aircraft, a green arc. It's called the altitude range arc. No, it's not. It's called a green banana. The gray ball. Green banana. <laughs> That's a technical term. Right. That's what we called it. <laughs> Very good. And then, and then that 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 green banana altitude range arc uh, is going to tell you where the aircraft is going to be. Uh, the, where where are you going to reach the selected altitude, which which you're going to have set up on your mode control panel or, or flight control unit, whether it's an Airbus or a, or a Boeing, is going to tell you where are you going to reach that position, that that altitude along that track. Now, obviously, uh, you're at some point you're going to need to reset your mode control panel altitude to your missed approach altitude, right? So that green banana is going to go away. But as long as you are on LNAV and VNAV path past the top of descent and the altitude range arc makes relative sense along that track line there. Um, and you also have um, not so much on RNAV approaches, well, at least the, the, the newer ones, but on older, I guess, less, not, not particularly LDA approaches, but just LNAV and VNAV approaches. On some, on some places, you do have um, points along that track where you can do uh, vertical altitude checks based on your distance. And so, it's it's I mean it's it's a very very involved process because um and there's an actual sequence in which you have to press the buttons because if you press them out at least on Boeing's if you press them outside of the sequence the airplane won't do what you want it to do if say for example you pray you, you press a uh, VNAV and you forget to reset your altitude to your MDA your minimum descent altitude which is what you're going to set the the uh, the the, uh, the speed window to you'll be in VNAV. But it'll go from it'll switch from VNAV path, and then the second you go through your top of descent, since you haven't set a, a lower altitude, it'll go to VNAV out, which basically is an altitude hold mode. Mm-hmm. And you'll be in VNAV, and the VSD not going to go down. Situation indicator is going to start going down. It's and it's and it's just like your glide slip indication going down and down and down and down, and then you go, what the hell's going on? And, and then you forget, yeah. oh, dude, I didn't reset my altitude. Yeah. And so, and that's yeah. where getting yourself into trouble. That's a perfect illustration of why it's not as simple as people think it is. No, no. it's not. Oh, yeah, uh, wait a minute. This the, is all autoflight we're talking about here, and we're, no. all we're doing yeah. is just pushing a button and watching it happen, right? No. Yeah. 
There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> I tell you, the exactly. easiest thing to do is a Cat 3B ILS. You have to you have to monitor it. You have to have your hands on the controls. There are you know a very intricate uh, you know system peculiarities depending on the aircraft that you're flying, and that there's the. The, the the runway and then the aircraft and the crew has to be certified and all that stuff but you just let it do its thing and it does a phenomenal job you know you just press approach or land or whatever the case is and the thing just lands these approaches you have to really you know be have your wits about you know what you're doing and at the end of the day it, it is a manual landing because you have to see the runway at a certain point and land manually because these LNVNF approaches at least for now, don't have uh, flare and rollout capabilities. So you have to land manually. What's an IAN, according to uh, Mr. Boxes? Uh, that's why we like IAN. IAN, IAN is um, um, Integrated Approach Navigation. Um, and uh, LPV is a localizer type uh, approach yeah. with, with uh, vertical guidance. Right. Um, IAN is, so the, the 747, the Dash 8, and the 787 has that where um, when you're going to fly one of these VNAV approaches, um, like an LPV or an, or an LNAV VNAV approach, uh, you press the same approach button that you would press uh, when you're flying an ILS. So you're basically arming the lateral path and a vertical path, be it an LNAV and VNAV track or a localizer and glide slope. It's just <laughs> the same thing. It just simplifies the thing. Cool. So that's what that means. Now, going back to that green banana, we had that on the uh, Mad Dog and because our box was more like the Boeing box. And mm -hmm. now that I'm on the 717, it's like a, an Airbus box. And I don't have a green banana, and I really miss my green banana. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're much better for you than yellow bananas. Anyway. <laughs> well, they're, yeah, a little bit more tart. <laughs> yeah, there's not so much glucose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That was good. That was yeah, nice. good. Good. That. Uh, well, I'm glad we got a chance to uh, talk about that. And uh, the the moral to the story here is set the right the right Q and H setting in your altimeter and double check. Make sure if you're the pilot monitoring that it, everything is done properly. And then, you know, look at the other cues that are there to save your life. That you know, yep. that will would alert you that wait something isn't right. We shouldn't be at this altitude at this point, this distance from the runway. You know, just some it, basic pilot brain though. math. When we had to uh, requalify for instrument ratings in the simulator, uh, regardless of what profiles we were flying, the instructor would always have to make us climb uh, above the transition uh, level as to set 1013 and descend back below it again to set Q&H. Uh, and the only reason for doing that quite often was to go through the process of changing that aldometer correctly uh, because it was a pass-fail event if you mm. didn't do that particular oh, absolutely. job. And that, that's been so, it's such a basic thing to do to set your elevator correctly, but it's so vital. And here's another thing. I'm glad you touched on that next year because I wouldn't have thought of this uh, otherwise. Um, we are the only country in the world, the U.S., where the, the transition level is at 18,000 feet. There's places in the world, little tiny countries like Ecuador, for example, where I, where I you know, just, I, I flew there for, for many years. The TMA for Quito, the capital, is at 18,000. But the TMA for Guayaquil, the, the 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 city out on the coast, is only three thousand feet. Hmm. So you have to be mindful not only to switch from Q and E to Q and H, but also where the transition level actually is. So yeah, I've been to a few airfields. We've got very low 
uh, transition level. And um, I feel really quite uncomfortable. I'm down at yep. flight level four zero. And I still have, I'm going, uh, we, we're like setting the Q&H as you're intercepting the ILS because it's it's so low. It, I really feel, uh, you know, I much prefer it to be up at a reasonable level. I always yeah. used to like the States because you got it done nice and early when there was no pressure and you you weren't going to mess it up. Yeah. You guys are, you guys are at, I think it's at six over there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah. All right. Good discussion. Now it's time to get to know us but in this case us is rick because he wasn't with us in part one we've already talked about what we've been doing since the last episode and in this case rick is going to tell us what he's been doing um since the last couple of uh episodes and liz is wondering if you've run any marathons no, I huh. don't. Uh, I don't. I don't run marathons on, in my spare time like uh, Doctor <laughs> Steph does. I don't understand. She, I tell you, she's got superhuman DNA. Yeah. I, wow, it's un- unbelievable. Yep, unbelievable. Me, on the other hand, uh, no, uh, not not so much. I uh, so I got. Uh, I spent a week at home. Uh, I dealt with your usual home stuff that I have to deal with when I'm you know back home because stuff doesn't get done by itself. Uh, changed out a couple of grape of, uh, brake uh, calipers in the car, uh, serviced the, um, uh, steering, uh, the power steering, uh, reservoir. Uh, and then, uh, by that time it was time to, uh, get right back out to flying. I left for work last Monday. Um, and then I did a flight from, uh, Ontario over to, uh, Rockford. Illinois, spent the night there, and then from Rockford, it was my first officer's leg down to uh, uh, Stockton, which was nice. Um, and it was nice because um, a couple of uh, months ago, it was two, three months ago, maybe on the same flight, Rockford to Stockton, we had a we had a, an issue with with the uh, with one of the autopilots. So the center autopilot was uh, written up. And so we were flying with the left autopilot on that trip, and it was or the right autopilot because it was it was my first officer's leg, and the and and the, that, that autopilot uh, decided to uh, to uh, quit as well, and so we find ourselves with no autopilots, and uh oh, what are we going to do? So we did what pilots do, and we flew the airplane, and we had to uh, go down below uh, uh, twenty eight thousand feet, stay out of our RVSM airspace, and just hand flew it from about halfway point to Stockton. But this time everything went fine. So uh, my my FO just flew the airplane, no problem. Landed in Stockton, spent the night there in beautiful Manteca, California. Had some good Mexican food, and then uh, yesterday we made our way from there to uh, here to uh, Alliance. Beautiful weather coming in. Had a gorgeous sunset, and I'm um, here till uh, tomorrow morning to uh, head back uh, down to Tampa, and then we end the day back up in Rockford. And the following day, Rockford, Ontario, for a uh, a day and a half of uh, rest, and then to do it all over again. That's going to be uh, that's going to be my line until the end of the month. All right, very good. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Mm, no, nothing. All right. Nothing else. Nothing else. Very good. Very good. Well, why don't we then uh, move into the part two feedback segment? And um, we have decided that we're going to jump to eight and because uh, we want to make sure that we get this feedback in on this show. And oh, I'm sorry. 14? 14. I'm sorry. Where did I get eight? I have no idea. 
Oh, <laughs> because it's almost eight minutes long, his feedback. So that might be what uh, I'm thinking. Okay, yes, number uh, 14. And uh, so uh, Lars writes in, uh, I thought I'd share some thoughts with you from deep within the Arctic Circle, along with my thanks for creating this great content. I'm sorry my technical skills prevented me from recording the feedback through the website, but I trust you to uh, forgive my mistake. Oh, actually, this is better because if you had tried to do it through the website, Lars, through uh, SpeakPipe, uh, you would have been limited, I think, to like two or three minutes. And, Something uh, like that, yeah. Yeah, so you would have had to call. You would have had to do it like three times. Uh, so this was better the way you did it. So uh, anyway, with that in mind, let's uh, take a listen uh, from this audio feedback from Lars. Dear APG community and APG crew, greetings from uh, deep within the Arctic Circle. Calling you from um, way up north in uh, Norway. And uh, I would like to apologize for um, for the, uh, the background noises I'm in my car, my way to work. Uh, and speaking of me being on my way to work, uh, the past year and a half with uh, COVID um, actually made me discover APG um, and the wonderful community you guys have built here. Uh, I used to be, um, or I, I'm, I'm still a pilot, I just don't have, have a flying job. But you, I used to fly for um, an airline called Scandinavian Airlines. Um, and along with so many others, I got uh, relieved of duty last year. And um, uh, this, uh, this March, I was lucky enough to get a job in armed forces Norway. Um, the drawback being that I have a four-hour drive to get to work every week um, and that's actually how I came to discover APG uh, as it is a very nice uh, driving companion. I don't mean don't to be disrespectful but your, uh, <laughs> your voices uh, are really really relaxing when I drive, so. I'm not sure that I would recommend that, uh, Lars. Lars, watch out! Watch out! <laughs> uh oh, no. Lars? Lars, you there? Yeah. Anyway, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I cold. thought I'd um, take this chance to um, to give you my feedback and first of all say thank you for uh, creating such great content, uh, every single one of you, like, uh, Dr. Steph, uh, I love to hear about your uh, your GA flying. Uh, I do as much GA flying as possible myself, uh, and I would really love to hear some uh, some more about your uh, skydiving flying. Uh, uh, Captain Nick, uh, being an Englishman. I can relate the most to you. Uh, I, I love the, the war stories uh, that you offer, uh, plain tales. Uh, they should really be published, uh, book, video, audiobook, anything. Uh, you, you really have a gift for storytelling. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to listen every single time. And uh, Miami Rick, playing um, other than standard commercial operations with cargo. Uh, really, really love to hear more about that. Uh, we don't have 
as much uh, cargo operations over here in Europe. But uh, it's it's really interesting to to hear, nonetheless, um, how it's possible to actually fly for a living without having to deal with all those passengers. And uh, of course, Jeff, uh, thank you for being the head honcho in this. I'm sorry to hear about uh, your personal problems, uh, but it sounds like you are handling it like the true gentleman that you seem to be. Uh, and uh, I wish you all the best. And of course, Liz, uh, the, the great Canadian uh, man. It, it, it's awesome to, to have you uh, as part of this team. Uh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm positive that the, uh, the quality of the show is, um, is lifted tenfold just by having you pulling the levers and pushing the buttons in the background. So thank you very much for that. Um, I would like to, uh, I would like to um, uh, give my um, fellow uh, low-time pilots, uh, colleagues, and aspiring pilots a few bits of advice. Um, as as many uh, have already uh, said through these audio feedbacks and through various internet. Um, Uh, uh, yeah, Facebook groups and social media and things like that. Um, staying positive, uh, to, to me anyway, is it's paramount. So um, you, you may have spent a lot of money trying to trying to fulfill your dream and reaching a goal, but even though things are looking up now, uh, airlines are still hit pretty bad and, and many airlines won't, won't hire for uh, for a number of months or even years still but use this time to your advantage uh, like your, your chance will come absolutely no hint of a doubt um, but take extra uh, take, take some classes expand your knowledge make yourself more um, attractive to uh, to an employer, any employer for that matter. But um, if you can, if you can, um, can do uh, like part-time studies, in, say aviation management or, or anything, go for it. Make yourself uh, the best candidate for any job. And um, and having said that, uh, I would also like to to. Um, issue a, a word of caution because with with the surplus of pilots uh, a lot of uh, not necessarily airlines but at least recruiting agencies are now um, benefiting from this surplus of, of pilots with uh, a number of schemes like pay to fly and, and uh, really like mediocre or, or bad contracts where, where you as, as an employee uh, basically have no, no protection. Um, so, so please um, consider what you're signing on to. Um, I, I know for a lot of you, uh, the dream is to fly. 
and I know that uh, you are willing to go to to extreme lengths in order to fulfill that that dream, but still don't sign up to anything. Um, stop and think and, and um, consider if the contract you're signing is worth it in two years. If uh, if you can get fired for for uh, reporting unfit for flight, is that really a place you want to you want to work? So, anyways, um, that's uh, my two cents. Anyway, thanks for the great content. Thanks for a great show, and uh, have a very nice and pleasant future, everyone. So long from Norway. Thank you very much. Great feedback, Lars. And I hope, Lars, if you're listening, that you didn't mind me embellishing it a little bit. Um, <laughs> the, car, the car wreck sounds and the uh, uh, gas equalization there uh, after those fine things that he said about our producer-director, Liz. <laughs> I had that, yeah. too. Yeah. I, I, I assume a moose jumped out in front of him or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Polar bear. Um, no, those those are those are very very wise words, um, and uh, it's I I can see how um, you know uh, an outfit or two without scruples would take advantage of the situation and uh, you know um, not do the right thing. And but but as you said, um, you, you have to keep an eye out for that. I I remember uh, you know early on starting out, you know you basically. Uh, are open to any kind of opportunity out there that would, uh, you know, get you, get you flying. But, uh, but there's the right way to do that. And then, then there's the wrong way to do that. So uh, the, the, the points that you make are clear, concise, and invaluable to people that find themselves in, in this, uh, you know, uh, just difficult, albeit temporary position. Um, yeah, but um, thank you for that. It was great. Twas, twas, and he is so right about um, Nick's amazing capability oh. for storytelling. And in fact, so much so that I'm wondering if the stuff that he claims as being real and true in his life, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think that he may have uh, made all that up. I don't well, know, it is storytelling. I know. It kind of goes stories. with the title. <laughs> <laughs> he hires that woman to come in and play. Yeah, Liz is saying that you hire that woman that comes in to play your wife every, every week when we see <laughs> yeah. her. Wow, very clever. Yeah. What a ruse. I know. All right. Three A. Anyway, three A. We're going to go. I keep to. the real one in the attic. Uh, away. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> She's not not quite as attractive as that uh, that fake one that you have there, huh? Uh, um, very true. Uh, let's see. Uh, Stefan. Oh, Stefan writes um, on Twitter. Hey, APG crew regarding uh, APG 492. Ladon's question. Uh, crew alarm during inactivity. Yes, it started with the Boeing 747-400 and it's called pilot response. A beeper will sound after some approximately 45 minutes of in inactivity. Fun fact, the flight sim folks like to get rid of this during their flights. And then he gave us a link to a little of a bit of a discussion on a AvSim forum where people are 
not liking this obnoxious uh, Come on. alarm going off. <laughs> I, thought it, I thought you wanted it to be as real as it gets. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. But apparently not. Not that no, real. Not, not this part. Okay. So that's true, huh? Rick? It is. It is. So, but it's, um, so it basically, basically the way, the way the system works as, as, as it's pointed out here, about 45 minutes, you don't do anything. It'll, 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 you know, blare an alarm first, uh, slowly, like, uh, you know, at, at, at longer intervals. And then if you really are passed out, it'll be the same alarm as the autopilot disconnect alarm, which is very, mm-hmm. very loud and obnoxious and annoying. Um, now, there are certain switches that do not count to let the uh, system know that you're awake uh, and other switches and buttons do. So the, the the buttons that do are buttons that are associated with the mode control panel, uh, changing, uh, obviously, headings, uh, altitudes, um, range of the map, uh tilt of the um, weather radar antenna. So it's not like you have to turn the autopilot no, off and hand fly no. the airplane or anything like that. Okay. <laughs> so, so if, if you, if you, you know, uh, turn the volume up on, on, on your, on your headset or, 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 or do something or, you know, or decrease the, or increase the temperature uh, on the overhead panel, that's not going to do or turn the light on or light off. That's not going to do anything. Uh, there are buttons that are real, the buttons that 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 uh, deal with that system specifically, at least, and and, and Boeing's are uh, switches and buttons that are related to the um, the autopilot, uh, and the, the flight management computer, and other um, uh, ancillary systems. Hmm. So it's not just it's not everything. Just to make sure you're engaged. Exactly. Oh, and, and 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 the thing with the so the one at least for me the one that I that I deal with a lot is the uh, the head uh, button the, the the little knob there because um, on air on airplanes uh, the at least the ones that I fly all of them all the all the airlines that I've flown with the two airlines that I've flown for um, the navigation display is is oriented to track up and so the as the wind changes, you know, and intensity and direction, the aircraft is going to track, you know, um, and the, the drift angle is going to change. And uh, we always uh, keep the uh, heading bug aligned with the drift angle that the airplane uh, is presenting at that minute because you don't really read your heading from the navigation display because that's not your heading, that's your track. Your heading is actually up on the mode control panel, or in newer airplanes, uh, on your primary flight display. It'll also be displayed there, and so you're constantly adjusting your heading to coincide with your drift, and so that will keep you um, away from uh, having to deal with this uh, annoying alarm. And of course, you, you only hear it if you're on the flight deck, Rick. So if you guys have bummed <laughs> off. Back to the galley. <laughs> All of you. Next meal. Exactly. <laughs> You're not going to hear it. That's no good. Yeah. Well, don't they have no. a little, uh, you know, ringer or alarm back in the galley too? No, I guess not. Yeah. Don't they give you a pager? So uh... <laughs> a pager, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> See, the thing what you do there is you just take the batteries off, and then you're you know, you're scuffed. Right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's always Thanks. a way to get around all this. So does the Airbus have Does the Airbus have something like that? Liz is asking. No, we stay awake. Ah. <laughs> of course of course yes okay uh let's move on to this last, last piece least. of feedback from texas charlie and uh, he sent us in this image from an a cars display on a boeing triple seven 
And How do you is, know that's a triple seven? Well, I don't know. I I feel like it well, is. It says it in big letters. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> obvious. Uh, so the top uh, part of the screen here was the first message. Object, potentially a ballistic missile launched from North Korea <laughs> at 340Z. Uh, they get this message. So it must be out there somewhere in that general vicinity, I'm imagining here. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a, a warning that they would have had to have issued. And then uh, the next um, one, about 22 minutes later, if I've done my math correctly, uh, the missile launched from North Korea fell into the sea surrounding Japan. Resume normal operation. Now, I'm not sure exactly what they did besides whatever they were doing to begin <laughs> yeah, with. I was wondering that. What can you do? Yeah. They were probably uh, just praying, what, maybe. What have they done <laughs> that they now need to resume normal operations? They stowed away the cloaking device. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Stuff that we really can't talk about on the show. Uh, uh, yeah. Secret, squirrel, right. secret squirrel. Turned off stuff. the chemtrails. There yeah. you go. Because, <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful with those chemtrails because those missiles sometimes will lock on to the trail. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's, a, uh, that's a Fox yeah. 2, I believe, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's certainly foxy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, those missiles are often anti-chem missiles, so, you know, got to right. be careful. Well, folks, it's time for us to wrap up for, I can't believe it's uh, it's already that time, but it's time for us to wrap up uh, episode 493, part two. And uh, we do appreciate uh, you all uh, coming aboard with us in the live audience and, uh, you know, being there for us and uh, helping us out with things. And we do appreciate all of you uh, listening to this in the future at some point, uh, the pre-recorded show, both the video, uh, which is kind of entertaining if you want to see what we're uh, doing and looking like when we're recording the show, or for most of you, the uh, audio-only podcast that you've downloaded from your favorite podcast uh, provider. And uh, we do always appreciate any reviews you give us because that really helps uh, let other people know about our show. Now, you know, of course, we've already resigned ourselves to the fact that we're never going to be the best podcast of all time, but we're still out there, you know, having fun anyway and and uh, doing our best. So uh, yeah, we do appreciate those five-star reviews and uh, telling people all about the Airline Pilot Guy show. And if you want to learn more about it, or you want to point your friends to it, it's our website, airlinepilotguide.com, where you'll find out more information about the individual crew members, the community. We have a community calendar for stuff going on as along with uh, when we're uh, letting you know when we're going to do the next episode and some links involved with that. We have the uh, APG library if you'd like to read aviation-related books, and that's our uh, librarian, Tiffany, that manages that. We have uh, more expanded information regarding the plane tales on the plane tale page of our website. And by the way, just as a reminder, just wanted to let you know that you can also subscribe to Plane Tales as a separate podcast, and then you don't have to listen to all the other stuff if you'd rather not. Um, Coffee Fund. Coffee Fund. There's information about that there as well, and merchandise and uh, uh, ways to contact us, and so much more. So check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on social media, and I'm going to let uh, Nick and Rick fight it out to determine who wants to do the social meds. 
<laughs> don't. That's don't, that. That's that's that. that. Yeah, I so. shouldn't have done that. That's, uh, I should say Nick. <laughs> nope, he's blacked himself out. Okay, Rick, go ahead. It's you. Everything Airline Pilot Guy <laughs> related on Facebook is uh, at Airline Pilot Guy. There, we're also on uh, Twitter at APG Crew. Everything APG related is on there, and on the Instagrammers APG Crew. Cool pictures and everything APG Crew related there, and I believe. Uh, Hillel does not have a uh, an option to uh, black himself out now, does he? I, I don't think so. Let's see if... Uh, uh, unless he's wearing a black robe. Hillel! Hillel! Do you have time for Slack? Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Okay, you know, we're used to that. Come on over here. I'll move out of the way so you can get up in front of the microphone here and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or... Send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel. We always appreciate you telling us about that quasi-social uh, media network. would you lose on my back again? Um, no, and I never have. <laughs> Man, sometimes it's frustrating. Hey. Anyway. He's quite pushy, isn't he? He is. He is. He's getting more so in, in his uh, older age. Uh, but we do appreciate uh, him managing that uh, that thing we call Slack. And we also want to make sure that we thank our producer, director, control room person well done, who uh, tries thank to keep you. this all under control. Liz Piper in Toronto. Bravo. Thank you. You're awesome. You're awesome. All right, and with that, it's now time for us to wish you a great week. Clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Cheers, everybody, for the second time. (laughs) Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies. I helped them to their seats. Airline pilot guy, I fly America. Oh, airline pilot guy, he can't land in heavy fall. I got no friends. Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy I fly